This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. You, Malcolm. I love Malcolm. Malcolm called me the Sunday that he died. I was working Basin Street East. He said, Brother Greg, you, 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 you're coming by today. And I said, Malcolm, I love you. And I said, I love you so much, I don't even want to take a chance to be there. He said, what do you mean, Brother Greg? I said, well, I closed tonight, Sunday night at Basin Street East. And I said, but I had my wife book me a flight into Chicago at 8 o'clock this morning. And I'm going to Chicago, and I had uh, way beneath my salary book me into a college about 10 miles from the airport. And I'm going to go there and speak this afternoon, and I'm going to stay there until they tell me you did. Because I'm not going to let this government get two of us for the price of one. And I'm going to call Adam Clayton Powell when I finish talking to you and beg him not to come there. Because today, the United States government is going to get you. And I'm not going to be there. I love you. I don't even want to take a chance of my heart changing. So I went to Chicago. And when they came and they told me Malcolm's been killed today, I got back on the plane and came back here. Malcolm was killed because of a, another brother named Depinto. A lot of people thought he was African, but he was East Indian. He was born in Nairobi. He's the one that changed Malcolm's head from black nationalist to pan-Africanist and made that connection from here to there. And the government said, we can't let this happen. He's the one that persuaded Malcolm when he went to Africa and stayed seven weeks and met with all the real leaders. And then he's the one that discussed with Malcolm of bringing racism to the doorsteps of the UN. And as Malcolm was being shot dead in New York City, DePinto was being gunned down in Nairobi. All right. Same time. All right. Same time. So don't tell me about no black movement. The same time. Same time. Malcolm was being gunned down. Now, let me finish this. By saying this. And you folks out there on radio, when we cut off, that's why you should be here. Yeah, y'all come on down. Yeah. We'll be here. We're not, you know, if you get here late, we'll be here next week. Just wait on us. You ain't got nothing to do. Nothing to do. Now, let me show you how this white racist system treats black folks. The black folks that they got to kill Malcolm, Malcolm was standing on a stage like I am. They threw a smoke bomb in the back. When everybody got to watch the commotion, the brothers ran up with double barrel shotguns and shot him. But under the Freedom of Information Act, we were able to get the autopsy of Malcolm and all the bullets in Malcolm is going down. Now I can't stand on this stage and y'all down there pointing up, which means the government have such a low view of those black folks that would do it. They didn't even 
didn't give them real bullets. They gave them blanks. Do this. Good everything. Good everything. Hi, can you hear me, Dr. Carl? Good everything. Good everything. Mm. How are you? I'm listening to our brother Dick Gregory and uh wow, what moved you to play that this morning, Pro? It it came across my timeline this week, and then this week I also interviewed a gentleman who has a uh, documentary about the infiltration of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. at the behest of the FBI. And um <laughs> I was thinking about COINTELPRO. I was thinking about Fred Hampton. We're coming up next year on his 75th, what would have been his 75th birthday. I think about Joanne Chesimard, who is now Asada Shakur in Cuba. And I think about all of the folk who fought for you and I to be able to sit here on a Saturday and speak freely, semi-freely. I mean, we speak freely. I don't know what the consequences are. No question. we're We're speaking freely in spite of everything. That's right. And I think about Malcolm and Depento, a name I never heard of, so I, it took me down a rabbit hole. P.O. Gamo uh, Pinto, uh, liberation fighter, born in Nairobi in uh, 1927 to a Kenyan Asian family. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the one who inspired Malcolm to take a case to the UN, and uh, he was murdered. Uh, and I think about all of the African nations right now being put on this chessboard and moved around, and leaders, and Haiti, and I just think about us as global citizens and our responsibility. And as we also fight for liberation and reparations and all the other things that, that are owed and deserved, the divisions that we allow ourselves to have are manufactured. That's the right. things that we think about one another have been planted in our spirit. And it's us, it's up to us to fight every single day against colonization and anti-blackness and all of the things that will keep us from freedom and you and i now 158 straight saturdays are sitting. 158 we yeah. blew past, we blew past the third literal third episode uh, third installment uh anniversary we did the 150th but we still had a few to go so we passed that now we over three yeah and we sit here trying to suss it out through that's it through remembering you know because our memory has, has been uh altered so thank you i want to say that let me start thank you thank you that's why i brought more my nubia and refill i know it's uh specifically uh shaped to us enjoying documentaries and shared media experiences in nubia but it's a broader concept to nubia and refill we've been refilling so critical yes so how how are you i'm doing well i mean uh you know i'm glad i got a chance to to spend last weekend in new york with uh with Jimmy Cleckley and the folks at the burial ground. That was just really, and with the ancestors, you caught me as is your mission in life to catch us, to make us think when you asked me what was going through my mind, I was sitting there with all those ancestors. And in the wake, I thought it's them. I mean, we were there. So I was glad to be there. And I was really glad to go as well to the UN the day before and spend the day there. Um, just not as a, obviously what did, uh, what did Earl Thorpe call the black historians who didn't go to schools? Scholars without portfolio. I had no portfolio, no diplomatic papers, but the visitors pass got us in. And so I just sat there we walking around looking at these sisters and ear hustling, as the young people call it, to these sisters plotting the future of the world. That if you just get out of the way of these women, everything will be just fine. <laughs> so just, I'm just very happy about that. So I spent the week thinking about 
globality and, and the fragility of our systems and how if we just can't connect with each other, we can right the ship. And here you enter this space again with this, this thing on your mind and these ancestors. It's definitely ancestral. Yeah, I mean, I talking to this documentarian about how they infiltrated uh, the Black Lives Matter unit in uh, Denver, Colorado with a white man. Of course. Who, who came in and then said, they're informants, said the leaders are informants. And people like, yeah, I could, I could believe that. That's how they get us. No question. Uh, ended up rising to, <laughs> to power. No question. Well, that's the oldest trick in the Cointel Pro book. You come in, it's the rah-rah, hardcore, hardest, let's kill everybody, let's get the guns. That's the plan. Yes. <laughs> that's, that that's, that's the oldest trick in the Cointel Pro book. <laughs> so there were two questions. A, is it that easy? And B, FBI, y'all still, y'all still doing that? Y'all still what so what so the, the white nationalists that are showing up in Buffalo and Charleston and Charlottesville killing folk, plotting to overtake the government, storming the storming the Capitol, they're not a problem. They're not a problem. But they're the folks in the streets because black people are being gunned down unarmed and shot in their homes. They're the problem. They're the ones that need to be infiltrated in this country as voting rights never got passed, as they're coming after all of the civil rights one by one, as they're erasing history. We're the problem, FBI. We're the problem. Why is that problem? Walk us through that. I can't. Hey, I can't. Good, good everything to everybody in Nubia and good everything to everybody who's going to watch right. this later over the arc of the week. Let's be very clear about every Saturday and then and then every day through the week, including uh, every Monday night when we're in office hours in Nubia. This is what we're doing. There are no set answers. We're. I love the way you put it, sussing it out. So why do you think that is? <laughs> let me let me pull up let me pull up the the the, the chat too here because uh, we was looking at the edge of three thousand on Monday night and I know we do about the same number on Saturday mornings live and then everybody the thousands come later and you dropping stuff every day of the week now that you didn't expand it past Sirius XM if y'all haven't checked out Karen Hunter's YouTube channel you better go subscribe at ASAP. And hit that like button on everything. But these little these little snippets of the longer conversation you're having, this is this is what we're doing. You are truly exploring this global majority. But why is that? Why would you say? Why would you think they think that that this would these type of things would be domestic threats in, in the United States, bro? Can't hear you. Is that me? Myself, because I was going to create an overflow room. Uh, Church. Oh yeah, yeah, you, you got I'll it. Do, I'll do that after I say this thing. I'm gonna dip out and then create over. All right, all right. Um, we would think it's Friday Monday night because people was like, "Wait, is, is it count?" And then Uraeus is like, "No, it's unlimited number, but so many people coming in now, and more and more coming in. You got to create overflow rooms like a church itself. It's all virtual, so we all still here. So yeah, uh, and I just you know I, we had some people who said the chat was moving too fast for them, so I figured if I create an overflow room, fewer people. More, no more more intimacy no less less speed and no so question. you know and i'll do that right. you're right melissa uh baba dick gregory was indeed a prophet yes indeed. yes indeed. she yes. just said that in the chat i just saw that over there so <laughs> i mean but i mean we all have to ask that question of ourselves as well but if you think about the founding principles of this country it was never intended for me and you and any one of you to be in any position of leadership or so-called power or even have freedom. So 
any freedom, any semblance of freedom is a threat to, I guess, the founding principles of this country and must be stamped out, eradicated. And so we'll give you some new here and there, maybe just so y'all will stop, you know, be quiet. Just sit down. Here's an Obama here and a Stacey Abrams there, but we're not going to let her be governor because she might actually do something. So let's figure that out. Uh, and in the meantime, yeah. Oh, here. Oh, here's a Tim Scott. Stop it. T.S. T.S. Tim Mission. My man, Mission Accomplished. Yes. See, see, we're not racist. I voted for Tim Scott and Obama twice. How about that? Yes. Sir. Yeah. This country's not racist. You know, we had Obama. Um, so, yeah. So there, maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know. No, I mean, but, but can those two things be reconciled? Can the idea, not just of freedom, because we know that's the shibboleth, that's the word that we use, but can the idea of freedom, but beyond that, the idea of basic level common uh coexistence because one of the things that uh when we were at the united nations and went in the bookstore and i hadn't seen this book yet but uh i picked it up and i haven't been able to put it down <laughs> it's uh 661 pages this is uh by a professor at university of california los angeles law professor has a phd and a jd was an international lawyer, worked with NGOs and other formations inside the United Nations. And it was one of the few books, relatively speaking, in the UN bookstore. I'd never been in the UN bookstore. So we were walking around in there and, and this was prominently displayed. It's called The Absolutely Indispensable Man, Ralph Bunch, the United Nations and the fight to end empire. And of course, there's Ralph Johnson Bunch, son of Detroit, by way of LA, traveled around very different places, got a bachelor's degree at University of California, Los Angeles, went to Harvard for graduate school at 25 years old, was hired at Howard University to uh, join what became the political science department. He stayed there for a little over a decade. Well, actually closer to about a decade and a half. And then he left and uh, ultimately joined the United Nations where he rose to a senior position um, and actually arguably, and not arguably, the most celebrated diplomat at the United Nations, a, a founding figure of the United Nations, uh, worked for the State Department of the United States as well. I mean, we talked a little about State Department last week, but I'm raising him because reading this book is, you know, there's been a lot of books on Ralph Bunch. Uh, my man, Charles Henry, uh, uh, now emeritus professor emeritus at Cal Berkeley. Uh, he was president of the National Council for Black Studies when, uh, when I was a graduate student. Oh, by the way, NCBS's uh, annual meeting is next weekend in Gainesville, Florida. My man Dave Canton is hosting the University of Florida. So it's going to be a hot time, as Malcolm X would say, a hot time in the old town. Uh, we coming. <laughs> Puffer, you should probably leave the state, brother, if you don't want to hear what's being going to be said about you. But at any rate, um, yeah, Charles Henry wrote a book on uh, Ralph Bunch. Brian Urquhart, who was his senior assistant at the United Nations for a number of years, wrote a book on Ralph Bunch. And there've been a number of books. I'm going to talk a little bit about Bunch this morning in the context of what you raised, Prof, because Ralph Bunch, as a young man, writing, thinking about a career, first perhaps as a lawyer, and then ultimately getting a PhD and working in international affairs for the rest of his life, too short life. He made transition, I think, in 1971 in his late 60s. Um, Longer than Lance Reddick. We'll come back to that in a minute in terms of black death and how this figures in. But Bunch 
as a young man in, in college, wrote about the possibility of the brotherhood, we'll say the family, to expand it past the gender concept of brotherhood and sisterhood, the family of humanity, and how could we build a global family of humanity? What Johnson, uh, I say Johnson, this is middle name, Ralph Johnson Bunch would call brotherhood. But as he matured and was in conversation with any number of people, I mean, you know, he, he came in the generation long around the time as E. Franklin Frazier, who he served on Howard's faculty with, uh, Eric Williams from Trinidad and Tobago, who was on that faculty at the time, Murs Tate, so many others. Again, Howard being the central university for the collection of black intellectuals prior to the end of apartheid. Uh, hasn't been in that way since and will never be that way again since because legal apartheid basically trapped all of them together and out of that ferment came some remarkable cross conversations and work but bunch who was uh fascinated with the work of Karl Marx and Engels and and uh traveled extensively in South Africa for example there's a book actually published by my former colleague now professor emeritus of African studies at Howard Bob Edgar uh, the travel journals of Ralph Johnson Bunch uh, as he traveled through South Africa in the 30s. Bunch uh, wrote his PhD actually on French West Africa, Togoland, Dahomey, and negotiating the end of colonialism. In fact, he spent most of his career as a diplomat grappling with questions of colonialism and being present for the birth of many new countries, but also being straddled uh, around these forces and powers that you uh, kind of gestured toward, Prof, when you mentioned the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which had a bunch file. Of course, they all had a file on the Negroes. But I'm bringing this all up because as he aged, Bunch dropped the concept of brotherhood in favor of the concept of coexistence. He said, if we can get some coexistence, because when he was a young man, I think Bunch was born in, I think he was born in 05, wasn't it? It wasn't 01, it's 1905, I think, when he was born. Um, his family moved around a lot when he was young. His parents passed. His grandmother was his dearest, uh, closest kind of raising figure. Yeah, I think it was 1901. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, I won't get too deep into that. That's just the number y'all can look it up. We look it up. Somebody drop it in the chat. But at any rate, Bunch... When Bunch was born, there was no League of Nations. He graduated from high school around the same time that the League of Nations came into existence, of course, which came after World War One, which is basically Europe's war with itself and pulled some of the rest of us in. It's really not a world war as such. But Bunch was fascinated with the League of Nations. Can you create a world system where all the countries in the world, all the nations in the world, all the people in the world talk to one another and resolve disputes? Well, by the time Bunch came to full maturity and had been a professor and got his PhD you know, in 1945 and then transitions first to the State Department, then to the United Nations, where he rose to the uh, rank of deputy, uh, deputy secretary general. You know, secretary general is the one who runs the UN. Bunch was right beneath him and in many ways was as or bigger figure at the United Nations than the secretary generals he served under. He had moved to diplomacy and move to this question of coexistence. Why? Because World War II really saw the fracturing of the old system of empire. And as uh, Rostiala writes, Professor Rostiala writes in this book, The Absolutely Indispensable Man, reiterating what has been said many times, you had the old Europe empires, 
the parents of the criminal enterprise that I'm sitting in right now and you're sitting in right now, Prof, and many of us, although not all of us, because we're now really truly a global classroom, is sitting in, he's called the United States, where the parents, the English, abetted by some others, the French and others, they wanted, you know, Churchill, once Churchill in particular, wanted to extend the British Empire. Hey, baby. Hey, hey, fella. First of all, want some coffee? Sober up first. Yeah. yeah take it down. You're drunk. You better? Okay. Ready? Okay. I'm going to say this one time. But them days is gone, baby. Sorry, that was the spirit of Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory loved the word, baby. <laughs> Negroes ain't never going back to sleep, baby. <laughs> you hear me, baby? <laughs> Dick uh, Winston, them days is gone, baby. So the empire ain't going to work no more. And Ralph Bunch and them coming along saying, well, we've got to figure out a way for the majority of people in the world, what Professor Karen Hunter would refer to as, gleefully, the global majority, can come into its own with regard to self-determination. So while Ralph Bunch is at the UN, these people are fighting their way into uh, self-determination, some form of self-determination. Although, and I'm tying all this back to COINTELPRO in a second, as they are doing that, the children of the original European settlers, I'm talking about now the United States in particular, is trying to slide in the DMs of the UN and figure out, because the UN is in New York after all, and, and figure out, okay, we we, we're, we're, we don't want the empires of old, but we do want kind of a new empire. In fact, it's an excellent book by Professor Chris Manjapra, who's at Tufts University. It's called Black Ghosts of Empire, The Long Death of Slavery and the Failure of Emancipation. He takes it back to enslavement and enfolds in colonialism. And his argument is quite simple. He says, you know, after enslavement ends, there is an age of this expansion of human rights and universal freedoms, although not quite complete, because he says, you know, the emancipations and enslavement further codified the racial caste systems, the caste systems that they claim to disrupt. So after enslavement, yeah, the afterlives, as we always say, Carter Woodson said, the sequels to slavery begin. And of course, this is where W.E.B. Du Bois in 1915, when World War I starts, writes his famous article in the Atlantic Monthly, The African Roots of War, where he says this war you call in World War II is basically Europe fighting itself over what it's going to do next in terms of resources because its colonies continue to resist and it is reconfiguring, as it always does, its relationships with each other. That persists, of course, to this day. I know you all probably saw in the news uh, yesterday or the day before where Turkey is saying now, OK, yeah, we can expand nato but not to sweden i mean so that they're still trying to figure out you know even to this day how they're going to configure themselves and of course russia looms which we'll talk more about that in a second russia and china loom we'll come back to that in a minute i won't go too far away from this cointel pro thing and the fbi so let me walk this in together as we tie it together so what you see is ralph bunch enters his most productive and influential part of his life as the United Nations, the sequel to the League of Nations forms, and the transfer begins from what Donald Rumsfeld used to call old Europe to the extended European uh, empire, reformed as a constellation of nation states, including colonies, former colonies in places where the Europeans and their children had their uh, feet on the necks of the majority of people in this world. 
Well, India's not going to stand for it no more. Nigeria and Ghana are not going to stand for it anymore. So it's going to take South Africa and Namibia a little bit longer, Mozambique and places like that. But for sure, Egypt's not going to stand for it anymore and so forth and so on. So there what you basically see is Ralph Bunch is at the center of this trying to negotiate the birth of a new world. But is it a new world, really? Because while Bunch is doing that in good faith, he's also in the rooms. But if white folks collude with each other to make sure that they may remain in control, whether it be the International Money Fund and the World Bank on the financial side, the Bretton Woods agreements, whether it be the United Nations itself, we're going to be at the center of the power. So they set up a framework whereby they will never relinquish power. When we talked about that last week a little bit with this UN Security Council, which is at the heart of the United Nations, where everybody come, everybody talk, everybody vote, everybody sign, but then we got a veto power right here in this little ass place called the Security Council, and we'll even let you come in that room and talk, but at the core of it are these five countries. Russia and China, we don't like it, but we got to, you know, because they got the bomb, and but these other three, France, Britain, United States, two from old Europe, one, the child of old Europe, we will always have the veto power. So there's this tension here. And of course, they persist to this day. When we were there, they were debating again and trying to figure out how can we get rid of this arrangement? Because the world is not Europe and Europe is so desperately trying to cling to power. But in order to do it, they collude. So when Malcolm is traveling in 1964, 1965, when he's assassinated in February 1965, when he has traveled before that, 1959. See, Malcolm X met uh, this brother in 1959 in Kenya, uh, Pio Gama Pinto. You know, that wasn't his first time in Mecca, in Africa. In other words, in the Saudi Peninsula or in Africa. When he went on his Hajj, that is memorialized in the autobiography of Malcolm X. I mean, Malaj Muhammad had been over there. I mean, so, you know, the, the narratives fall apart when we start spending some time tearing with them, studying with them, as Karen Hunter might say, sussing it out. So, Malcolm's International Travels, and I would recommend a text that's actually very good for this. If I can find it, I think I put it over here somewhere where I could put my hand on it. Mm, I guess I did. I know I did because I was just looking at it. Here we go. A text by Marika Sherwood, who's a Brit. It's called Malcolm X Visits Abroad. Marika Sherwood. She chronicles his journeys abroad. Europe, Africa, so-called Middle East. Um, this is taken primarily from his travel notebooks. And there's a version of his travel notebooks that's been published by Third World Press. His journal, that is. And I caution folk because, again, sussing it out requires it's a very deliberate process, which requires a lot of conversation with each other, a lot of checking all different sources, because immediately about any of these books, you know, as my friend and brother Paul Lee, who is, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest living uh, scholar on Malcolm X for a number of reasons, um, he says, you know, Greg tries to read everything. Yeah, that's true. Paul's a lot more discriminating. So, you know, I mentioned these books and he will immediately say, okay, this is what's good and this is what's incorrect. So again, a note of caution because any book is going to have gaps. Of course, it's a book. Once you write something down, you've excluded everything else except what you've written down. So, you know, by definition, but this is a good starting point because Sherwood, who only mentions Pio Gama Pinto once, and that's in the acknowledgments to thank folk for leading uh, her through some of his papers and some of the conversations with people who knew him. And he said he too was assassinated, as you heard by Dick Gregory said. Well, 
Malcolm is thinking now internationally. This creates a problem. Well, unlike those who might um, tend to favor at this juncture, this American descendants of slaves or slavery movement or FB1 or some of the other acronyms, unlike the anchoring tenets of the California Reparations Commission that said that reparations is arguing that reparations is due uh, only in the United States to those who can demonstrate blood lineage descendants, descendant from those who were enslaved here. Well, unlike that, although to be quite fair, um, the the commissioners out there in California are well aware of the international context of reparations and don't reject an international movement, but they think that the best legal strategy, I think, is to pursue a lineage-based claim, which is, of course, in my mind, absurd, uh, because the lineage-based claim will fail in court. This isn't about being able to cross the T's and dot the I's to make such a compelling case that our open enemies will say, well, we hate y'all, but damn, you got us on the law. Give them the money. Give them the resources. See, the problem is that ain't never going to happen. And the lawyers know it. Legal scholars know that. But uh, let me continue in this. Unlike this kind of nativism, and by nativism, I won't even say just Black American nativism. Nativism where anyone will look at wherever we came out of our mother's wombs as the place of our struggle exclusively without connecting those struggles globally across race lines, cultural lines, uh, you know, class lines even, if we can manage that, which might be a bit of a stretch. But unlike those who would look exclusively where we are, those who built a system to maintain power never look exclusively within those lines. So while the CIA is tracking Malcolm internationally, the FBI is tracking him domestically. And while there are competitions between them and exclusions and erasures and confrontations, there's also cooperation between them. So when you hear Bobby Dick Gregory talk about Malcolm in the context saying, I ain't going to be there. It ain't going to get two for one. I'm going to come back to this in a second because and tie a lot of this together in the context of what we're talking about because Dick Gregory is having that conversation with Malcolm X in February 1964 after having been present with Malcolm X in that Audubon ballroom in December 1963 and on many times. In fact, Malcolm X introduces Dick Gregory and he speaks in December 1963, if memory serves me correctly, and it doesn't have to serve me correctly because I can go to the text, pick up Malcolm X speaks. No, this is by any means necessary. Here we go. You get the text Malcolm X speech speaks. Uh, this is a text of Malcolm X's speeches, you see, published by Pathfinder Press. And if you look in that book on page 88, chapter 8 at the bottom, Audubon, when Malcolm X returned to the United States on November 24th, 1964, he had spent a total of 25 weeks abroad during the year. This amounted to a little over half of the less than 50 weeks between his break with the Black Muslims and his death. His return a few weeks after the presidential election coincided with the U.S. government's intervention in the Congolese Civil War. Uh-oh, Congo. Ralph Bunch, was Ralph Bunch involved in that? Yes, this is very important because there are tensions here. Malcolm X going to engage in a little lightweight Ralph Bunch slander around the question of Congo. This time last week, being in New York, I had just left the day before the room where the Congo crisis was talked about, the UN Security Council. 
There are living people. This is the living memory of people who were actually there. Audley Moore was their ancestor. John Clark was their ancestor. Carlos Moore still around. They protested the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. And shortly thereafter, after the death of Patrice Lumumba, the UN Secretary General, the ranking guy under which Ralph Bunch was like number two, Dag Hammersoll, was killed in a mysterious plane crash. You know, he's a damn mysterious plane crashes. But anyway, they're arguing at the United Nations about the Congo. Why? Because the Congo is struggling to be born. Patrice Lumumba, the great patriot, the great Pan-Africanist, the great African leader, is assassinated with the help and the collusion of the Belgians, the French, and the damn United States of America. Get a book called JFK in Africa. The cover of the book is JFK with his head in his hands as the phone to his ear as he's in the White House in the Oval Office receiving the news of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. JFK. You might give a damn about John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I don't even care if you did elevate yourself by touching the hand of Black Ralph Bunch. You still was on the phone when they killed Lumumba and you knew about it. MFR. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Let me use the words that uh, old school cats used to use them. They Maryland Farmer, Mr. Maryland Farmer. Anyway, JFK, MF, our acronyms. But the point is this. They are colluding. So when we wrap ourselves in the flags of our country, whether it's Nigeria, the United States, whether it's Ghana, Trinidad, and Tobago, whether it's Brazil or Canada, when we wrap ourselves in the flags of wherever we came out of our mother's wombs to the exclusion of everybody else, we are not doing what our open enemies do. Them flags is cosplay beyond a certain level. So Dick Gregory telling Malcolm X, I ain't coming, man, because they're going to get you. Did Gregory evoking a Kenyan named Pio Gamo Pinto? Pio Gamo Pinto influencing El Haj Malik El Shabazz, Malcolm X, during his last, during an early circuit, followed by a later circuit of travel in Africa, in Europe, in the Saudi Peninsula, where he is broadening his scope and continuing to reinforce this concept of unity. All of that stuff makes Malcolm, makes Pinto, makes Dick Gregory, makes anybody Black Lives Matter, which is supported globally. Any global movement with local iterations that connect their local struggles to the global movement is an absolute threat to the global movement of white supremacy and capitalism. It only looks like it's a domestic application. Here in the United States, given the idiocracy that we live in, the easiest way to smear a global movement is to call it communist. Hey, they're communists. They're communists. Damn communists. Mm-hmm. Spell it first, Hillbilly. You can't spell it? Oh, okay. And here we come, repeating what they said. Yeah, you know, I, I would support it, but I think it's kind of communist. Okay, no problem. Explain it. Now, that don't mean, Ralph Bunch was fascinated with this notion of class and how class persists and plays out in social formations and how those who have the least suffer the most and how we might use a class analysis to advance the interests of those who suffer the most. There's a very good book that talks about Ralph Bunch was a younger man when uh, when this uh, when, when this book, as this book chronicles, uh, Born Along the Color Line, the 1933 Amenia Conference and the Rise of a National Civil Rights Movement. Remember, we talked about this. I'm not going to talk about it again. If you go to the... Um, to the narrative archive, you can trace through and you can see where we talked about the Spingarns and and uh, the inv invitation to Troutbeck for the Amenia conferences and how Ralph Bunch and Frank Frazier and them, uh, Emmett Dorsey and them, a lot of these guys were Howard colleagues. 
uh, come to Armenia because these white people didn't call a meeting of Negro leaders to talk about the race problem because it's in it's couched in race terms. But a bunch of them are thinking about race terms and and class terms, and they are critical even of Dr. Du Bois, who when bunch graduated from high school or gradually graduated from yeah high school, no college, he wrote Du Bois and said, I want to be a service to my people. Maybe there's something for me at the end. AACP and Du Bois writes him back and says, you know, well, you know, let's stay in touch. We, we could talk. And then over the course of their lives, Ralph Bunch and W.E.B. Du Bois encounter each other many times. And then Du Bois is ultimately gets to the point where he, too, being an internationalist, is on the radar of the State Department, is on the radar of the C what becomes the CIA and all these international organizations. In fact, to shut him down, to shut his wife, Shirley Graham, down. To shut his friend Paul Robeson and his other friend Essie Robeson down, to, to shut down Louise Thompson Patterson and 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 her husband, um, who were all signatories of something called We Charge Genocide that we've talked about many times, because after the United Nations is is founded, black people in the United States, some black people, leaders of black people go to the United Nations and charge genocide. This is the historic petition to the United Nations for relief from a crime of the United States government against the Negro people. This is 1951. Leading the charge, Du Bois, leading the charge, Paul Robeson, a hero of Malcolm X, as we talked about, going to tie this together in a second. And what do they use? They use Article 2 of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, adopted December 9th, 1948, by the United Nations. This, I'm particular. I have another edition. The first is, but I love this copy because I don't even know remember where I found this. I'd have to sit in there. But this was one which was originally sold at Seventh Avenue and 125th Street, the National Memorial Bookstore. That's Mr. Michaud's bookstore. For those of you old enough to remember, the House of Proper Propaganda. When you see the Malcolm X movies and he's on the platform, or you see the documentaries and Malcolm's on the platform speaking in front of uh, the National Memorial Bookstore, that's the bookstore this book was originally sold in. We charge genocide, but I'm bringing it all up. In fact, let me just pause here and just give you a little glimpse of these names because we talked about this probably a couple of years ago. But again, there are a lot of new people here now, and you can go. You should go back through the archive if you're not yet in narrative. You won't have access in the way. So look at the petitioners there. Carlotta Bass, who ran for vice president of the United States. Her speech is still the best speech given by a vice presidential candidate for elective office um, at the convention. Uh, Benjamin Davis, of course, city councilman out of New York, open communist friend of the Robesons and others, Dr. Du Bois, Roscoe Dungy from Oklahoma. Roscoe Dungy's sister is probably better known, Drusilla Houston Dungy, who wrote The Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient Kushite Empire. Boy, black people. Uh, Howard Fast, who is not black, actually a novelist, writer, very important. Harry Haywood, of course, Harry Haywood, who for a number of years was uh, married to, what's the sister's name? She just made transition. Gwendolyn Mitlow Hall, their daughter, Rebecca Hall, just wrote a graphic novel on uh, revolts and rebellions among enslaved African women. Very important. Harry Haywood, um, uh, Alphaeus and Do Dorothy Hunton, uh, Claudia Jones, of course, the Trini. A uh, communist who was expelled from the United States ended up in London, where she continued to struggle until her death. One of the founders of Carnival in London, Baba Oz, all y'all know, out of Sojay Carnival over there in London. She's buried in the same cemetery as Karl Marx. In fact, her gravestone is, which is the title of the book that was written about her 
uh, by the sister from Cornell. I'm looking over here if I see the title, uh, see the name. It'll come to me in a minute. If I'm quiet, I'll remember her name. But the title of the book is Left of Karl Marx. She too, an opium communist. Anyway, a number of people in here. I could keep naming folk, but I'll, but I'll, I'll resist the urge to continue. Uh, well, the Robesons, of course, Paul Robeson, uh, Islanda Robeson, their son, Paul Robeson Jr., um, Mary Church Terrell. I, I'll stop with that. Mary Church Terrell, of course, from the District of Columbia. But these people now, oh, they all got open files from the FBA. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Carol Boyce Davies, Professor Davies. I'm sorry, Prof. I haven't seen her since before COVID. So thank you. But yes, the um, the point is that when we go international, then they say, Dears, here's the problem, because this could actually be effective, because it's more them than us. Who is them? Common humanity. Who is us? White supremacy and hypercapitalism. Now, when they decide that there's something being threatened, they go global. When we decide to connect our local struggles to global struggles, they move into action and plot. Malcolm is assassinated. Dick Gregory, it's like I ain't gonna be there because they ain't getting two for one. The same Dick Gregory, going back for a moment to Malcolm Speaks at the Audubon. Let me just read a little something here. Uh, let's see if I can just get to a bit of space in this speech because Malcolm's talking about traveling around. He says, the FBI can feed information to the press to make your neighbor think you're something subversive. I'm sorry, let me give you a date on this. This is December 13th, 1964. Malcolm X in Harlem at the Audubon Ballroom speaking. He says, the FBI can feed information to the press to make your neighbor think you're something subversive. The FBI, they do it very skillfully. They maneuver the press on a national scale and the CIA maneuvers the press on an international scale. They do all their dirt with the press. They can take the newspapers and make the newspapers blow you and me up as if all of us are criminals, all of us are racists, all of us are drug addicts, or all of us are rioting. This is how they do it. When you explode it legitimately, when you explode legitimately against the injustices that have been heaped upon you, they use the press to make it look like you're a vandal. If you were a vandal, you have a right to be a vandal. Now, He's speaking through the ages at BLM, right? BLM, they're all members of Bloody Antifa. And they come in literally to the United States Capitol to hang Mike Pence, burn the place down, and shoot people. But it's Black Lives Matter, because as Malcolm said, the thing has been engendered. And even some Negroes. Well, back up. Malcolm says they master this imagery, this image making. They give you the image of an extremist. And from then on, anything you do is extreme. You could pull a baby out of the water and save it from drowning. You're still an extremist because they projected this image on you. Puffer, puffer fish, and all you people talking about woke. This is the branding. Yeah. Woke airlines, woke, woke banks, woke, woke whatever. It's just using this branding. Again, you could pull a baby out the water and be like, ah, that was a woke move. They can create an image of you as subversive and you can go out and die fighting for the United States. You're still subversive because the press has made you a subversive. He goes on, goes on, goes on. He says a good example of what the press can do with its images is the Congo, the area of Africa that our guest that's on his way. Malcolm has invited a guest to come and talk about the Congo. Remember, they've killed Patrice Lumumba. African people are in an uproar around the world, including the United States, protested at the UN. And they're gonna talk about the Congo. Malcolm is talking about the Congo in part, according to Dick Gregory and a lot of other scholars, because of Pio Gamma Pinto. 
who helps him understand that. Let me go a little further. He says, let's just take it one step further before our guest arrives to show you how they use this image making through the press. I'm not condemning the whole press because some of them are all right, but most of them aren't. Pause. You don't think the black press is important. Professor Hunter, you know, we've talked about the importance of the black press because they've got black press that has been cowered by the white power structures. By power structures, I mean white, everything from white business to white banks to white politics to white to the, to the FBI paying visits and trying to intimidate people and two people in among the black press who feel like they're doing the right thing by condemning communism. But then you got others like Carlotta Bass, the publisher of the California Eagle, who ain't scared, who are very clear. And so the press is a complicated thing, but at least the black press had some openings. And we talked about the brother writing for the Cleveland Column Post that after Hiroshima had this training as a scientist and as a journalist and began to expose what had happened there. This is somebody who's publishing in the black press. It's not the New York Times. It's the New York Times pats itself on the back for recognizing what this man did decades before they did. Malcolm goes on and says, take Tashambi. That's a man that you should never let set foot in America. That man is the worst African that was ever born. He's a cold-blooded murderer. He murdered Patrice Lumumba, the rightful prime minister of the Congo. And what happened there at the time? They used their press to get Tashambi a good image. Yes, the American press. They take this man who's a murderer, a cold-blooded murderer, didn't murder just somebody, murdered the prime minister. Then they go and use their press to make this man acceptable to the world. We're going to pay attention to this. I'm going to put a footnote here, come back to it in a minute. Uh, that is, of course, the news from the International Crim Criminal Court in The Hague that uh, arrest warrants have been handed down for the minister of, uh, I think, uh, responsible for child welfare in Russia and the leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin. Of course, the Russians ignore it because they are not signatories to the United, uh, International C Criminal Court. And the Americans are applauding this and they are saying this is great because these guys are criminals. And of course, the United States, who is a signatory to the International Criminal Court, is, is, is seeing this as international cooperate. Wait, hold on. Wait, is the United States a signatory to the International Criminal Court? No, it's not. Just like it's not a signatory to the, it wasn't a signatory at the time when they charged genocide to the to the Convention on Genocide. The United States ain't never gonna sign nothing. The government of the United States, well, I won't say never, because the demographics are changing, baby. Them days gonna be gone, baby. The United States, that is not a signatory to the ICC, is praising the ICC for issuing an arrest warrant for Putin. And Russia is not a signatory of the ICC either, but it makes for good press. Again, you're fighting a morality play where you're getting people to pick sides with no information. This is what Malcolm is talking about. And so he goes on talking about the Congo. I'm not going to get into that. I want to mention the person who we invited who wasn't able to come, but who left, sent a message. But before I do that, I'm going to uh, mention the brother you started with, Prof. December 13th, 1964. Malcolm X, in this larger conversation we're having today about this question of internationalism, globalism, not globalism, internationalism, uh, at least some form of cooperation and how we build power and movements at the local level and where we are by connecting to these global movements, even as we continue our work at the local level. Malcolm goes on a little bit later and he says, so I say, brothers and sisters, it's not a case of worrying about what's going on in Africa before we get things straight over here. It's a case of realizing that the Afro-American problem is not a Negro problem or an American problem, but a human problem. 
a problem for humanity. When you realize that, when you look at your and my problem in the context of the entire world and see that it is a world problem, that there are other people on this earth who look just like you do, who also have the same problem, then you and I become allies. That's allies, not like the uh, the infiltrator they sit in and say, I'm an ally, and he talking the most smack, end up being the feds, COINTELPRO, against Black Lives Matter, contemporary COINTELPRO. No, by allies, meaning comrades in a struggle with moving together. You're a communist. You are misinformed. Malcolm says this. When you do that, and you and I become allies, we can put forth our efforts in a way to get the best results. And then the next line, this is what Malcolm X says. As I announced earlier, Dick, I told them that a friend of mine from Africa who is a real dyed-in-the-world human wool human revolutionary was on his way here. Then you walked in. He's talking to Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory walks in December 13, 1964, the Audubon Ballroom. He says, as I announced earlier, Dick, I told them that a friend of mine from Africa who is a real died in the wall, human revolutionary was on his way here. Then you walked in. This ain't February 21st, 65, when he said, I got Lil to book me somewhere outside of Chicago near the airport because I ain't going to be there. This is December 64, not even three months, be just three months before. No, December, January, January, February, two months before. He said, then you walked in. They thought I was talking about you. <laughs> I'm sure there was some laughter there. Malcolm says, well, Dick wasn't the one I was talking about, but Dick is a revolutionary. And Dick is a dyed-in-the-wool African. He doesn't want to be, but he is. I don't mean dyed-in-the-wool. I mean African. Dick is one of the, most, of the foremost freedom fighters in this country. I say that in all sincerity dick has been on the battlefront and has made great sacrifices by taking the stand that he has and this is 1964 1964 decades more of struggle after the death of his friend malcolm dick gregory poured in in fact the greatest struggles of dick gregory life lay ahead of him at this point malcolm says i'm quite certain that it is alienated. Many of the people who weren't alienated from him before he began to take his stand. Whenever you see a person, a celebrity who is as widely known and as skilled in his profession as Dick, and at the same time has access to almost unlimited bookings, which provide unlimited income, and he will jeopardize all of that in order to jump into the front lines of the battle, then you and I will have to stand behind him. I want Dick also to hear our brother who's coming. But before he gets here, I think Dick had better talk to us. Come on, Dick Gregory. Come on, Dick, without the cigarette. Can y'all see this next line? Dick Gregory speaks. Now, he ain't come February 65, but two months before, he was not only in the room, he got up and spoke. A little bit of what Dick Gregory, Dick Gregory said, I'm very thankful that Dick has been able to come out with us tonight. As I said, he is a freedom fighter. Watch out now. What did Brightman leave out of this book? Why do we need to hear the recording? While I asked Paul Lee, who probably got 15 copies of the recording somewhere in his archive, they cut out what Dick Gregory said. Dick Gregory was there, Professor Hunter. Now, for a word on the guy that wasn't there. Professor Hunter, are you current with uh, the current season of uh, our brother, um, Forrest Whitaker's Godfather of Harlem? I am not. I dipped out. Uh, when they switched out the Malcolms. <laughs> it's a tough sell. In fact, it's not a sell. I go with, yeah, that first Malcolm was, was Malcolm. 
yeah, he was fired. But also, I, I'm only giving myself two of those kind of shows, and I've selected Snowfall last yeah. season and uh, BMF. I don't know. I got dragged in because of the the ridiculousness of the bad acting and um, <laughs> Snoop Dogg and Monique. I just could. So I was like, I'm only doing two of them. You know what? It's like a car crash, ain't it? It's, it's so bad. Lord have mercy. Our brother Jackson, Curtis Jackson, that captured the whole where it's like we just just when you think there's a floor, you look around <laughs> and you see somebody with a shovel. What you doing, bro? Oh no, I'm sorry, not a shovel. What's some things they use when they're breaking up the asphalt to go deeper in like a jack? This gotta be the floor. Then you hear <laughs> wait, wait, wait. oh no, BMF, bro. <laughs> oh, so if you don't want like I get I got it because I got my own holes. I mean Godfather Harlem is fascinating to me because of course when we're watching this Bumpy Johnson, Mamie Johnson, I mean, you know, you're seeing history, Adam Clayton Powell, Malcolm X, the FBI, CIA woven in. And so you know historically what's happening, what's gonna happen. But then you see, okay, where are they gonna take creative license? Where they're not gonna take creative license. There's a moment in this season when Che Guevara and Malcolm X talk. And the idea is that Malcolm's going to go to the U.N. when Che Guevara talks and uh, he's going to speak at the U.N. too. That doesn't happen in history. But the way and I haven't, you know, th- th- there's no spoiler alert with history, but there is spoiler <laughs> alerts if you watch Godfather of Harlem, because what I just described doesn't track what happened in reality. And it doesn't tell you how they play this out in the episode. But I'm saying all this because in this context of Malcolm X's internationalism, which what Dick Gregory not only supported, but participated in himself. There, Malcolm and Shay never speak at the UN. However, Shay Guevara was in New York to speak at the United Nations to condemn what was going on in the Congo in 1964. And he was one of the people that Malcolm had invited to speak at the Audubon. You can't make this up, Prof. Y'all know y'all be there. What do you say, Professor? They people think we we sit and plot all week and plan how we gonna move. You mentioned Dick Gregory and Malcolm X to be just as we were getting ready to come into this space. So before you know, and then it's like, oh wait a minute, let's go, <laughs> and it ties perfectly to what I've been thinking about this whole week and how I think we should also be thinking about this. I'm just gonna mention this very quickly. Che Guevara, the Cuban revolutionary who himself is killed, freedom fighting in Latin America, who accompanied troops into Southern Africa as they're fighting to help liberate Southern Africa, who Kwame Nkrumah writes about. In fact, Kwame Nkrumah dedicates one of his small pamphlets to Che Guevara and Malcolm X. When you read Marika Sherwood's book, or better yet, read Nkrumah himself, you'll see. This is what happens. Che cancels the Audubon trip. He does, however, go to the United Nations, ultimately, and speak. Marika Sherwood believes that there's no there's no found document to say why, but what she suspects is that Fidel Castro, who Malcolm met and sat with at the Hotel Teresa and had a relationship with, Castro may have told him not to go because he felt like there might have been an assassination attempt. Because these people, when they get together, they ain't no rules, y'all. The only beefs they have is with each other. When it come to you, they form like Voltron. So maybe they take out Guevara and Malcolm. 
Because what is clear is that Govera and Malcolm and, and, and Dick Gregory and Fannie Lou Hamer, who spoke when we talked about Fannie Lou Hamer, she spoke at the Audubon. Her speech was recorded as well. That was preceded that night by the SNCC singers who sang their famous song. We went down to the Preach Tree Manor to see Ogenga Odinga. Odinga, Odinga is one of the leaders of the anti-colonial movement in Kenya. And these students from SNCC, and I'm going to mention actually now that, I, now that I said that it reminds me, I think I pulled, yes, I did. James Foreman, The Making of Black Revolutionaries. We're going to tie all this together because I saw, Prof, uh, I watched the conversation that you had with our friend and my sister, uh, Rukia Lumumba, about mm -hmm. Jackson. We're going to tie that to Jackson in a minute. But the point is that all these people are looking globally and acting locally, which means that so are our open enemies who hate for that to happen. So Che Guevara pulls back. He doesn't come uptown to his friend Malcolm to speak, but he, what does he do? He sends a one paragraph message and here it go. Malcolm says, I love a revolutionary. And one of the most revolutionary men in the country right now was going to come out here to be along with our friend, Sheikh Babu, who was the other brother who came. But he thought better of it. But he didn't, did send this message. It says, and these are the words of Che Guevara with Dick Gregory sitting there in December 13th, 1964. Che writes, dear brothers and sisters of Harlem, I would have liked to have been with you and Brother Babu, but the actual conditions are not good for this meeting. Receive the warm salutations of the Cuban people, and especially those of Fidel, who remembers enthusiastically his visit to Harlem a few years ago. United, we will win. This is from Che Guevara. Hey, he's a communist! Yep, so is your mama. The point is... <laughs> You don't want this linking up, but the propaganda will tell you these are boogeymen and devils and evil and dictator. But you won't sign the United States of America government with a black woman being the representative of the United States to the United Nations, Linda Thompson Greenfield. You will not sign on as a signatory of the International Criminal Court. But when the ICC swears out a warrant for Vladimir Putin, Oh, you celebrated. Oh, you say they're doing a good job. There have been 51 defendants and counting. They got to add Putin in them now that have been called before the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court, the overwhelming majority of those defendants have been continental Africans. Yeah. Omar Hassan al-Bashir. Y'all know Bashir was tearing up the Sudan for years. President of Sudan, all kind of bad stuff. Sure, Jean-Pierre Bamba, Bimba, remember Congo? In fact, multiple people from Sudan, multiple leaders from Congo, multiple leaders from Kenya, including two people who end up being president of Kenya, Cote d'Ivoire, a husband and wife, the president his wife from Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Laurent and Simone Bagbo. Problems in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, and we can talk about the politics of any of these places, but one thing's for clear, the International Criminal Court brought them up on charges. Uhuru Kenyatta and William Ruto. Uhuru Kenyatta's father, Yomo Kenyatta, was friends with, in fact, he was the leader of uh, Kenya, the prime minister of Kenya, when the brother who the SNCC singers made the song about, who was also in the Kenyan government, was sent here. We went down to the Peachtree Manor to see Oginga Odinga. The police said, Atlanta police, what's the matter to see Oginga Odinga? The police, he looked mighty hard. 
Ado Gingo Dinga, representative of the Kenya of the Kenyatta government, the first government coming out of colonialism, coming to America, looking at conditions. And these people in Atlanta, these white people want them to believe, oh, we treat white, black people well down here. Them SNCC people was like, we're gonna go meet with him. And they memorialize it and then fictionalize it in the song O Ginga Odinga. And the white police in Atlanta are nervous. Why? As the next line of the song goes. He got scared cause he was a ex mau mau to see old Gingo Dinga. The Mau Mau, the Kenyan Land Freedom Army, as we talked many times, is the liberation movement, the underground and then overground liberation movement of the Kenyan people against the British. That's when Elizabeth was, became the queen after daddy died. She was down there at the resort with her stuffy husband. And uh, the Mau Mau, they scared as hell of the Mau Mau, the Kenyan Land Freedom Army, led by Field General Didan Kimati. That's my African name, my Gakuyu name, Kimati. I didn't give myself that name. I was given it by a year of our priestess. And I told that story before in, Ken, uh, in, in, um, in, in, in class. And you can look in the archive if you want to know more about that. But at any rate, why is Malcolm X talking about the same Mau Mau that the Snick singers are talking about? Well, it is speculated that it's P.O. Gama Pinto, who is Kenyan who is hipping him to the Mau Mau. Remember, they meet in 1959. The Mau Mau riding high in 1959. The song goes on. As the song goes on, the second verse, Oh, Ginga, the representative of the Kenyan government traveling the United States in Georgia, in Atlanta, with the white leaders of Atlanta, try to tell him race don't matter. He's looking around these black people and the Snick singers make up this song after they sit in across from the Peace Tree Manor, get arrested, and they write a song about Pan-Africanism, one they perform at the Audubon Ballroom just before Fannie Lou Hamer speaks, and Malcolm gets up, it's in that book, and he says, I love these Snick singers. He, they talk about Pan-Africanism, and then he goes into Kenya, and he talks about the Mau Mau, and he talks about the Congo, but in that second verse of that song, they perform at the Audubon Ballroom, they sing, Oh, Ginga said, look -a here, what's going on down in Selma? If you white folks don't straighten up, I'm going to call Joe Mo Kenyatta. Who? Oh, Ginga, oh, Dinga, oh, Ginga, oh, Dinga. The SNCC singers, these Africans from the South, from the United States, well, Chuck Neblett from Illinois, but I mean, the Africans from here, singing about Africans from East Africa at a meeting in New York where African whose father is from Georgia and mother from Grenada, raised in Canada, is introducing a sister from Mississippi to talk about the civil rights movement in the larger context of a human rights movement. And you got Negroes in 2023 talking about can't nobody get reparations except the descendants of those who were under the last year. You better wake up. And the same International Criminal Court that comes into existence and in, uh, I think it activated in 2002. The ICC, which is not an official arm of the United Nations, but is connected to the United Nations, has a, at this point 123 countries. So there's still a number of countries, 70, 80, 90 countries that are still not signatories, including the United States and Russia. Those signatories, 33 of those countries are African, 19 are Asia or Asian Pacific, 18 are from Eastern Europe. Uh, 28 are from Latin America and the Caribbean and the rest of them are from Western Europe or other places. But that is the International Criminal Court. Well, that same International Criminal Court swore to warn for the son of Yomo Kenyatta, Kenya, I'm sorry, Uhuru, freedom, Uhuru Kenyatta, Uhuru, Uhuru Kiswahili means freedom. Well, if you don't know any Kiswahili, all you got to do is listen to Oginga Odinga because at the end, their chorus is Uhuru 
freedom now. That's the chorus of Ogingo Dinga. They take the Kiswahili word freedom and they connect it to the slogan of SNCC at the time, freedom now, because the NAACP was saying free by 63. And they were saying now freedom now. And the third verse, I can't resist. The third verse, because they bring it right back down to Mississippi. Brother Jones wrote, how does it go? The white folks down in Mississippi will knock you on your rump. And if you holler freedom, you'll wind up in the swamp. Oh, gingo, dingo, oh, gingo, dingo, oh, gingo, dingo, Kenya, who? Oh, gingo, dingo, oh, gingo, dingo, oh, gingo, a dingo of Kenya, ooh, 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 ha, ooh, 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 ha, freedom now, and you hear the people, you hear the audience at Alabama, whoop, whoop, they clapping, yes, sir, white folks down in Mississippi, they're knocking on your rump with their funky-ass legislation trying to create an extra police force in the state of Jackson. White folks down in Mississippi, they'll knock you on your rump trying to starve the people of Jackson of fresh water. And then when the feds get the money, try to set up a damn board so they can get the money. The white folks down in Mississippi, they will knock you on your rump. But guess what? And if you have a freedom, Leo, wind up in the swamp, as they wrote in the Mississippi River, song from that same generation. We go back to narrative. We talked about all this, but guess what? After they sing that verse, what do they do? Uhuhuru. Freedom now. We'll give a damn about y'all. We're connected. And that connection gives us strength. As James Foreman writes in the making of Black Revolutionaries, chapter 44, page 338. He says, in the fall of 1962, I had read Che Guevara's book on guerrilla warfare. What? I thought this was an American hero fighting for America and George Washington and all them. And, uh, you know, uh, they're really Americans. These, 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 these people are really fighting for the best values of the founding fathers. Go to hell. Uh-oh. You must be a communist. I know what I'm not. Thank heaven you. Ralph Bunch said we should have brotherhood and sisterhood. We should have some form of family. But if we reject that, Bunch is like, well, maybe the best we can do is coexistence. And I'm telling you, that's probably the best that you can do in this funky settler state called the United States of America because they will die before they become family. But I guess what you can do, though, you can keep your hands off me. I keep my hands off you and we can kind of make it work out. And you're going to stop burning all that damn coal, too. But we'll get to that. Because some of this is going to involve more than diplomacy. We might have to lay hands on you You might because you've been laying hands on us since we got here. In fact, that's how we got here. Chase Foreman writes, in the fall of 1962, I read Che Guevara's work on guerrilla warfare and drew some lessons from it for our work. Lessons from guerrilla warfare work for SNCC? He writes in the next sentence, I saw SNCC establishing bases throughout the South. Bases that would grow into larger units. As we consolidated our power in the rural areas and the smaller cities, the time would come when we would work in larger cities. We would have to attack problems other than the vote, problems we faced as a people in our daily lives, jobs, housing, education, welfare, medical care. Prof, I saw the interview you had with the brother, the minister and the brother who runs the bank on affordable housing. These are not mutually exclusive conversations. Why are we talking about this international stuff? I mean, we got problems right here. No, 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 no. Don't think of them as separate. You must think of them connected because I'm going to tell you who thinks about them as connected. The banks. The banks think about them as connected. How do we know the banks think about them connected? Well, all we got to do is follow the news. In fact, I'm going to pull this up in a second. Prof, uh, I saw the conversation you had 
uh, with Sister Williams and uh, one, one United and United Bank. Could you? I mean, you asked her very specifically: Should we be worried about this bank failure, this Silicon Valley bank failure? And she explained why Silicon Valley Bank got in trouble. Right. Right. They had average uh, deposits four million dollars. Uh, the FDIC only insures up to two fifty. Um, and I and I was imploring my audience to really study commerce because that's how we got here and that's how you know what's that rap cash rules everything around me cream get the money right if we don't understand how this economy works we will always be victimized that's right that's exactly right and you know it's so fun i'm glad you mentioned the woo shout out to staten island because when they say dollar dollar bill y'all we understand that money is a proxy for power and value and so what we can get at the street level is the cash money the dollar bill and anybody thinking about pulling their money out and stuffing it in a mattress or leaving it at their house that's just paper you didn't take the value you took the paper that's why they were walking around after the the international uh banks decided to collapse the the zimbabwe uh, economy, trying to get at uh, Robert Mugabe and them. That's why you got to walk around with a stack of paper like this to buy a, a carton of milk. <laughs> it ain't the paper. It's what backs the paper or what is perceived to back the paper. So when you and Sister Williams were talking and she walked through the fact that the vast majority of people people who had their money in SVB were the, were the, uh, were the, the tech companies and so SVB is taking these risks, which have big rewards when they work and can collapse you when they don't. It made perfect sense. But then we and and not but and then we zoom out to the international level. It's today's financial times weekend cover. Value of global bank stocks dies $460 billion after week of madness. U.S. suffers biggest falls, sharpest decline since onset of COVID. Regulators hold talks. Prof, we got to think about this the way they think about it. Here, we, we, we wrapping ourselves in flags politically and local issues. Meanwhile, the people who run the world, as oh. the system we have, they never look at those flags. But guess what? This is what I, look, watch this. Let me see if I can find it quickly. Oh, yeah, here we go. On the, um... On the companies and markets page of today's Financial Times, here's the headline. Surebank to send record $3.6 billion dividend to Russian state coffers. This is the biggest bank in Russia, 50% plus one share is owned by the Russian government. They just got, the Russian government that is, $3.6 billion from this bank. Even as their profits fell 80% this year because of the war, they're still profitable. <laughs> now, I'm sorry, this ain't the U.S., this Russia. Now, on TV, we watch Russia versus Ukraine. We got to fight. And then here comes DeSantis, because he won't be president, trying to hit the soft core of the hillbilly horde by saying, if I'm president, I'm going to draw. We're not going to use that money for Ukraine. Okay, while we walk in the, the Panama show, and then the ICC sends an arrest warrant to Putin and his deputy, because they say, you have committed the crime. There are four crimes that you can charge at the International Criminal Court. The four crimes and four categories of crime you can charge in the International uh, Criminal Court are genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression. One, of the, they they charging them too with war crimes. They say you took children from the Ukraine and you took them to Russia. 
the minister in charge of children affairs in Russia, who was one of the two being indicted along with Vladimir Putin, she tweets out, we're protecting Russian children. And then says the International Criminal Court and puts an emoji of toilet paper at it. Because we ain't signatories and we don't recognize it. But here's the problem with International Criminal Court. They can come get you. Can they? They can they. Can they really come get you? No. <laughs> they really can't come get you. They can come get you. There are four sets of circumstances where they can arrest you. Are you in a signatory country? That's how they come get all the Africans. I don't care what's Charles Taylor in Liberia. I don't, well, all other things, the crime has to have occurred after, uh, after they reached the number of signatories to make it active, which I think was 2002. So it had to happen in the last 21 years. But if you're in one of those countries, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, they can arrest you. The number two of the four, you have to have committed the crime as a national of one of the signatory countries. Then they can come get you anywhere. Uh, there was a threat. They're going to bring George Bush. They're going to charge George Bush and Dick Cheney for the Iraq war. And they didn't, of course, because guess what? I'll get to that in a minute. Remember that damn Security Council? We're coming to it. But even under that threat, it was fear. Why? Because if Bush travels to a country that's a signatory of the thing, they might be able to arrest him. The third or four categories, if you are by or on a non-signatory state, in other words, are you over there on in the territory? Okay, we can come get you. That would be the circumstance under which. Or were you referred to the ICC by the United Nations Security Council? See, United States not a signatory, but they can get in the Security Council and say, I think y'all need to go arrest so-and-so. Let's have a vote. Now, that probably won't work because of the five permanent members, you got China and Russia, and they probably ain't never going to vote the way United States vote. But theoretically, the ICC can, has to do what the uh, the Security Council of the UN tells it to do if they want them to go pick up somebody or indict somebody. They at least have to charge them. Now, let me pause here and say, when we were at the UN, we were walking around, tour guide. We had a tour guide for a part of it, and then we were just kind of walking around. But the guide is showing us stuff. We end up, That's how we get access to these rooms. And he said, uh, what court is in The Hague? And I said, the International Criminal Court. He said, yes, but it's not a signatory of the UN. He said, the International Court of Justice. That's the one that goes back to 1945 when they put together the UN, before just shortly before Ralph Bunch joined the UN. The International Court of Justice is a civil court. The International Criminal Court is a criminal court, and it can only charge individuals, not countries. The International Court of Justice, the United States, is a signatory of that. That is the court where you have disputes between countries. That is the court where if a country is arguing about borders, that's what they'd be arguing about Western Sahara, which is a big thing. I brought that up actually when we were on the tour. We were talking about that, me and the guy off, off the uh, tour. We were sitting there talking about Western Sahara, which is not recognized. Western Sahara is basically a beef between Morocco, used to be Spain. They pulled out Algeria, got us some, and then the people of Western Sahara who want to self-determine. It's, it's a whole other thing because it's not a country, although the African Union has recognized it as a member, and that pissed off the Moroccans. They left the AU, but they came back to the AU shortly, uh, not shortly thereafter, a few years ago. Anyway, I'm going through all this to say that the ICJ, the United States is a member of, the ICC, it's not a signatory of, but it can use the ICC if it tells them to go pick somebody up. Now, they all hype for it when it works for them. Now, on the, again, we're talking about the political dimension, because remember what Ralph Bunch is saying is, well, we can't have brotherhood. 
If we can't have sisterhood, if we can't have familyhood, at least we can have coexistence. And as these countries are fighting their way out of colonialism in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Ralph Bunch is there at the UN helping try to negotiate. This is one of the reasons why Malcolm X critiques him. We'll come to that in a minute. Because Bunch was working for the State Department, then the UN, when he achieved his greatest notoriety. In fact, um, uh, um, Rossiala opens the book with Ralph Bunch coming to, believe it or not, the Academy Awards. <laughs> he shows up in Hollywood at the Academy Awards, is introduced by Fred Astaire as he gives the Oscar for the best movie of the year. But before he does, he gives a speech on peace because he has won the Nobel Peace Prize. What did he win the Peace Prize for? Negotiating, helping to negotiate after the death of the lead negotiator, he steps in with the UN staff and he says, I don't even want this. It should be given to the whole staff. What are they getting the, the Nobel Prize for? Did they still give it to Bunch? What did they get it for? The creation of the state of Israel, which earns him the enmity of the Palestinians, the enmity of people who imagine that Israel may become what it in many ways has become, which is very difficult to even talk about. A state where there are people in the state of Israel who are oppressed. Right now they're in the streets. Why? Because the Israeli government is trying to pass legislation to undermine the authority of the Israeli judiciary. And you've got protests in the streets of Israel right now. Tel Aviv, all over, where Israelis, I'm not talking about just Palestinians, and I'm talking about Israeli Jews as well. In fact, leading by Israeli Jews are protesting their own government because they say, if you undermine the rule of law in Israel by undermining the power of the independent judiciary, we are open to all kinds of charges. In fact, Israeli veterans, I read something the other day, the Israeli Air Force veterans and others are saying, we do not want you to undermine the judiciary. Do you understand these bombing runs you send us on? might be considered war crimes. And if you do this, it's signaling to the world that you have no rule of law in this country, making us that much more vulnerable. Now, we cannot even set aside the critiques of Israel, the critiques of any country that oppresses people. And we can set all that aside temporarily to consider the fact that even the people engaged in the bombing are like, oh, slow your roll, chief. Because once you ain't got no rules, in the words of the old TV series borrowed by Kumo D, guess what? It's the wild, wild west. <laughs> and guess what? You ain't got that kind of muscle unless you're willing to push the button on the bomb. This is the world that Ralph Bunch is trying to avert, but in trying to avert it, he gets caught up in it, and Malcolm and them are looking at him like, bruh, in fact, Malcolm X once said to Ralph Bunch, this is a man who doesn't know his history. That's a painful thing to say about a guy who's simply trying to keep the world from blowing itself up. But when you do that, and you're doing it from the inside of the system that was designed to keep people like you down, which is why I am fascinated by Ross Tiala's book, because he's reading international affairs through the life of a black American. Ralph Bunch was a champion of civil rights in the United States, and Ralph Bunch understood the relationship of civil rights in the United States for black people to human rights globally, and in fact, as a younger man, he articulated it with a global vision that vision, I don't want to say shrank completely, but it definitely adjusted to the realities, the real politic of a world where Europe recreated itself after World War II, and they passed the torch from England and France and old Europe to the United States, their children who have been carrying the torch ever since. But guess what? That arm getting weary is going down. Guess what? Because the demographics continue to overwhelm you and the people are not of the world are not going to continue to allow this to happen. One of the five members of the Permanent Council, China, 
Y'all saw, I'm sure you saw last week. I thought I had it somewhere handy, but if I don't, uh, yeah, maybe this is it. Yeah, this is from uh, Wednesday's Financial Times. China cast itself as global peacemaker after patching up Iran-Saudi relations. China just got louder because they helping the Iran, the Iranians and the Saudis make up. What the hell? China's like, hey, we getting ready to get into this diplomacy after U.S. Man, we 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 are building a what they call a multipolar world. Xi Jinping just announced that he and Putin going to meet. But it's a warrant out for Putin's arrest. Not here. See, y'all mistake the ICC for the world, and and you didn't sign on to it anyway. The ICJ, the so-called World Court. We're all members of that, but that's a civil court. And while you're talking, one of the reasons we want to stay cool with Russia, at least kind of, you know, because we might broker a peace deal. China looking better and better. Meanwhile, in the United States, what are they talking about? Woke banks and taking books out the library and the hillbilly horde trying to get at your teacher and trying to figure out, uh, are you transgender or not? And meanwhile, in the world, the world is being shaped, the world being shaped very differently. All right, now let me, let, me, let me kind of tie some of these things together so we can kind of because again, we're talking about this in the context of international issues, international concerns, and how they relate to local concerns. Because we are, after all, to quote you again, from a global majority, and we have to understand how the international can affect the local. So let me finish reading what I was reading from. Um, the making of black revolutionaries to make this point. And then I think we can all, we can put it together with just a couple of sentences. I should pause here to say that this is the thinking work that happens in real time. Every Monday night in Nubia and last Monday was no exception. You know, when uh, Baba Dan, Baba Omotosho came and we had a conversation about black on black. And then folk came in, young brother Caleb was out here on the West Coast, and it was just beautiful to have that conversation with him. And not only that, then we followed it up, the brother from Belize, who is also in LA, internationalizing it, and then our, our sister who always comes and has conversation with us about what's going on in Los Angeles, all around the book though. And then finally, uh, Baba uh, Morogi, or Cedric, who is in Brazil, who reminded us that the city with the largest black population in the hemisphere, isn't in the United States, it's Salvador Bahia. And anything that's affecting Black people in the United States, you can multiply that by an order of magnitude for Brazil. So he mentioned, for example, women and uh, mortality rates and disease among Black women. He says, do that by five, and that's Brazil. So, I mean, again, thinking about how we attack these things is very important. So James Foreman writes this. He says, Again, in the fall of 1962, I had read Che Guevara's book on guerrilla warfare and drew some basic lessons from it for our work. Huh. I saw SNCC establishing bases throughout the South, bases that were growing to larger units. And in fact, in a moment, Prof, as I finish reading these next couple of sentences, I want to ask you about, so, you know, for the folks who haven't seen it yet, and you can see a clip of it on YouTube, on your channel, on Karen Hunter's channel, the one that some of y'all are watching this on right now, you should go back and listen to the conversation between Karen Hunter and Rakia Lumumba. He continues and says, as we consolidated our power in the rural areas and the smaller cities, the time would come when we would work in larger cities. We would have to attack problems other than the vote, problems we faced as a people in our daily lives. Jobs, housing, education, welfare, medical care. There was never any doubt in my mind that we would confirm the right to vote and win unlimited use of public accommodations. The March on Washington had indicated that the administration and the liberal labor forces were prepared to push hard on those issues out of their own self-interest. 
This is what Ralph Bunch understood about diplomacy. People not coming to the table because they believe in the brotherhood of humanity, the sisterhood of humanity, the family of humanity. They come to the table because they got skin in the game and they scared. While we talking locally, these banks, and I'm probably know y'all talked about that, Jamie Dimon, Chase Manhattan, the biggest bank in the country, he got his friends and they got their friends and they put $30 billion in a bank that was the 14th largest bank. What's the name of it? First, uh, first, uh, some of y'all put it in the chat. It'll come up in a minute. Um, they put $30 billion on First Republic, $30 billion in First Republic to prop it up. And it still lost 33% value as of yesterday and dropping. Why? They scared as hell. Meanwhile, I was just reading FT this, this morning. The British banks are like, now see, we hella regulated. We ain't really worried too much about it. And guess what? The British division of SVB, what is it prop? Is it HS? What's the one? HS something. It's the British bank. They bought HSB, right? HSB. Yeah, I think it's HSB. I thought it's four, it's four letters. I'd have to look, but somebody put it in. They bought, they bought the British arm branch of SVB. And Janet Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury, Jamie Dimon, the head of Chase Manhattan, uh, Chase, the JP Morgan Chase, and one other guy, they got together. And then the last couple of days, they looking for sellers for this for, for the assets. See, there are no lines. You understand? And guess what, y'all? People say, should I take my money out? You ain't got no money. You got $5. They got money. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. You have dollars. They have value. So when the woo says cash rules everything around me, eh, value rules everything around me. Cream, get the value. Value, 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 y'all. But we say dollar, dollar bill, y'all. It's pegged to something. Well, it used to be pegged to something. Now it's pegged to perception because as Sister Williams was saying to us, we shouldn't be nervous. I'm listening like you have explained SVB well, but the thing that might also need to be factored in is what they're talking about in all these newspapers, which is what? Perception. See, those risk takers like Peter Thiel and these venture cap, when, when Thiel took his money out, it scared the S out of everybody. All this happened since we talked. It was Friday. Boom, what the hell? Boom. Wait, they taking their money out? Let me take my $2 out. Oh, Joe Biden. You're not, you're not even factoring in Twitter. Come, no, 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 Pra. Come on back for a minute. This is actually the point. The point isn't the finance. The point is the perception. You just named the central thing they are terrified of right now. Social media. This is how the bank fails. Say some more about that. No, I mean, it's like GameStop the, that Reddit allowed for a failed company to drive crypto. All that has been happening in these social media platforms. And the rumor of the failure of SVB and it's HB, uh, HSBC. Thank HSBC, you. that's it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I had already Google searched. No, 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 no. I didn't. I, I didn't remember. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, you know, the rumor started on Twitter. And I don't know if, if the, the man buying Twitter didn't buy Twitter uh, for this very reason. Oh, my God. You know right. what? I just, you know, I just saw it. Maybe it was in the uh, New York Times. You saw they just restored Donald Trump's YouTube. Account. Yes. Yes. And he, one of the first tweets is, I'll be arrested on Tuesday. This is the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, y'all, seriously. <laughs> This is why it's so important for us to be here too. 
because the perception, you're right. That's what happened, Prof. To think, remember that scene in It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah, you you broke it down on you money. Know? Yes, yes. Broke money, you know? I want my money. Right. But <laughs> that, happened, that, that happened in real time. And yeah. now there's electronic banking, which allowed, you know, you oh. got to go to the bank and then take your money out. Now it just happened electronically in minutes. Can you imagine that? Millions of dollars, yeah. Yeah, you ain't got to ask Jimmy Stewart for his honeymoon money. You can just go and stick this thumb on the, and your money is out. Well. I guess it is. FDIC goes over what, 250? 250, but um, they've now, um, I just got a message. Uh, one of those entities is going to expand it to four to uh, 2 million. Like they're, they're going to widen it. And FDIC has covered more than the 250. Right. So and, 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 and FDIC gets this money from where? It gets it from the banks, but also- banks, They all put it into a fund to yeah. as insurance. Yeah. I'm, and so again, again, y'all, how does this stuff connect? People say, well, vote no matter. Democrats and Republicans are the same. Hold on. If your name is Barney Frank and you're trying to sit on the bank board of SVB, then yeah. Then yeah, you, you relax the very rules you set because as Barney Frank said last week, I got to make some money. I don't have a pension. But if you're Maxine Waters, you know what I'm saying? Why, why is Maxine Waters important? Because as a senior Democrat on that banking committee, she's trying to hold the line to keep the damn protections high. We we, we, we got to stop and thinking about... Go ahead, please, Roger. The previous, the previous president, uh, who might be arrested on Tuesday, re, didn't he relax those? Didn't he? he relaxed them. Yes, and, right. and, the, and the train regulations as well. So uh, Yes! So we... You know, yeah, elections matter, and they're not the same. And there's nobody caping for Democrats. To me, there's no political lines. I don't deal in politics. I deal in people. We deal in humanity. What's working for humanity for all of us to win? But, you know, if you're not wired that way, I get it, you know. No, no, no. no. And and, and again, we're leaving this open. The reason I I say I'm glad you came back is because we're going to, you know, as we kind of wind up for today, as we are very deliberate about this, realizing that we're just beginning or continuing conversation, as you say, Prof, I like I like the concept of sus and sus this out because, you know, as we increasingly, as we continue to jailbreak these old, exclusive, hierarchical concepts of learning, as we return to the foundational fact that we all bring our bricks, that we're all thinking together, this only works when we all are together, rather than say we're researching, we're writing and putting things together, all that stuff's important, but the idea of sussing it out, that's something we all participate in. We're all comparing. We bring more things in, we we suss, we think about it. And so when James Foreman is writing in The Making of Black Revolutionaries about him reading Che Guevara in 1962, The Making of Black Revolutionaries, of course, was originally published in 1972, as the counterintelligence program, along with the FBI, of the FBI, along with their uh, international uh, colluders and competitors, CIA and others, along with the European domestic and foreign elements that surveil and undermine and thwart, even as they make movies to make you convinced that you should be rooting for these people that are against you. Shout out to James Bond. The whole idea is that as that's going on james foreman writes this memoir and let's take a moment to distinguish between memoir and autobiography i just want to do this very quickly because i mean well come on actually what am i saying i'm talking to a woman who has mastered the genre tell us tell us please tell them please tell them no 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 no. you look look unlike unlike uh unlike me you got hell 
How would you describe uh, this a memoir and, a, and an autobiography, probably? Uh, it, it, it's, it's, int- you know, um, one is written by a person, you know, their, their memories. And I've done several, uh, memoirs, <laughs> memoirs. She says, says modestly, but yes, we're going to say yeah. that. Well, you already know. Y'all better look up Karen if you don't know. That's all right. The other is, and I'm, I'm, I'm only hesitating because there's nuances to it, you know, um, I want to hear your 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 definition. Well, well I'll tell you what. I, the reason that come to me because uh, there's a, a... I don't know how he does this. Somebody, he puzzles three or four books a year. This is Toya and Falola's latest book. This guy's called Memoir, Memories of Africa, Home and Abroad in the United States. Professor Falola, if y'all remember, I've talked about him a number of times. Yoruba uh, man, incredible scholar, very deeply informed and engaged and committed to us grounding ourselves in what we would call in the Africana studies framework, ways of knowing, Africana ways of knowing. This is a book that he's written on the capacity of memoirs from continental Africans who have traveled outside of Africa and lived in the African diaspora to share their experiences with Africans, not only on the continent, but the world. And he makes a distinction early on. He says, a memoir for him is different than an autobiography in the sense that it focuses a memoir that is on personal truth. Memory. Yeah, a memory. Like this is this is how I experienced this. I was at the march on Washington or James Foreman. This is what happened when we was in SNCC. This is what happened when the Panthers joined up with us. This is what happened when we faced down the guns. This is me and Miss Hamer. And as I was standing there, I was thinking to myself, they can ready to sell us the F out. When we was in Atlantic City, this is Kwame Ture, Sotley Carmichael, ready for revolution. He said, when Pro, I saw my name was on the damn list to be taken out, I got the hell out of Dodge. I was in Ghana with Kwame and Krumah, then they took him out. I went to Guinea with Sekou Ture. I took the name Kwame. It's a memoir, it's my personal. And out of all that, Kwame Ture say, this is what I learned. I learned that we are Africans wherever we are. That isn't a chapter and verse. I was born here. I went here. I went to school here. Did this to come in. No, that is a based on all that. Here is what Tolian Falola would call my personal truth. He says, I don't care what y'all say. I was in Mississippi. I was in Alabama. I grew up in New York City. I'm from Trinidad. It was there first 11 years of my life. I went to Howard University and I've traveled and I've been a victim of the, F- of the FBI, the victim of the CIA. I didn't seen it all. I loved Martin Luther King with my whole heart. When he said he'd come out against the Vietnam War, I was sitting in the front row of Riverside. I'm with you. And I was walking with him down, down the highway in Mississippi when we made the call for Black Power. Shout out to our brother Mukasa Ricks, still hailing hearty swinging with both fists in Georgia. He said, based on all that, and then going to Africa and living there where he passed away again, he made transition. He said, I am clear of one thing, if nothing else, we are all Africans. That is what Falola would say is a personal truth. You can't debate a personal Mm -hmm. truth. A memoir is a collection of personal truths. He says it's also a commentary on life lessons, on social philosophies, and on interpersonal relationships. That's very important. And so, for example, if Lance Reddick, who made transition at age 60, which is should be very sobering, um, footnote, my man Jelani Cobb uh, just wrote a piece for the New Yorker that came out digitally on Thursday. He texted it to me Thursday afternoon, and I texted him right back because I was going to class. I had my hip-hop class. I said, I'm going to send this to them. We're going to read it, and I'll let you know what they say. Because he did it one on the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. And you know what he talked about, Prof? He talked about death. He said, 
not only because we memorialize these uh, artists who die young. He said rock and roll did it with Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, with Jim Morrison and all them 27 years old. There's something mystical, you know, James Dean. He said, but in hip hop, whether it be Biggie or Tupac, you name it, or this now young Dolphin M, this recent spate, which Quavo, was it Quavo or Takeoff? I forget, that, that got killed in Houston at the Dice game. All that he said, but that is only one form of death. He says, while people consume hip hop, Hip hop, all of it. He he makes a statement. I asked my students about this. We talked about this a long time. He said all of hip hop is really a, a, a set of expressions that is oriented around extending life. What? What does that mean? That means the money, the gold chains, the earlier iterations of hip hop from Latifah and them, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul. And he starts with De La Soul because he says all of it is anchored in this struggle of blackness to extend life a little longer. And he opens because he says, now we talk about the other things that kill black people that aren't as glamorous that you can't sell records for. Mm. High blood pressure. In the case of Dave or Trugoy the Dove from De La Soul, congestive heart failure, fibroids, cancers of all kinds. He says, see, what we don't realize is that this entire culture of hip hop as an extension of the cultures of blackness is a pushback against the shortening of black life by the violence of the society we live in. We're all victims of violence. I thought about that when Lance Reddick, when the news came across. Lance Reddick didn't live long enough to write a memoir. That's why I thought about it in terms of memoir. They said, well, we know an undisclosed cause is 60 years old, too young. All these athletes who play pro football dying in their 50s or 40s because they use their bodies up as gladiators in their 20s and 30s. And I thought about that because Lance Reddick didn't leave a memoir. If he had, perhaps one of the stories he would have told is the story that was in the New York Times by uh, uh, obituary on him this morning. It said, talking to Lance Reddick, all of his great roles, all of the things he did, uh, he said a little role he played in Law and Order of a Sierra Leone military man or something. And I, I kind of, I, I remember that episode. I don't remember the number and I didn't take the time to go look it up, but he said, out of all the roles I played in that role, remember now, this is Lance Reddick, son of Baltimore. I think his father was an educator, mother professional, came through, you know, went to uh, performing arts school, then went to Yale, rep, and did drama. He's a stage actor. You can tell. He says, all the characters I play, they may be intense, but they're different from each other. And he says, I played this little role in Law or a little bit role. This is Cat from Sierra Leone. And I had to learn a Sierra Leonean accent. He said, that is the favorite. That's that. That is my favorite role of my life so far. Mm. That role where I had to learn that accent, that continental African accent. I thought to myself, see, that's what you put in a memoir. That's a personal truth. That's a revelation. That is a life lesson, and it's also got a gesture toward interpersonal relationships with others. So I'm gonna say, in terms of memoir, that was the longer footnote because uh, the making of Black Revolutionaries is a memoir. It's not, you know, what I'm saying the Ralph Bunch. This is a biography. It's going chapter and verse, and this is gonna be somebody else talking about somebody else's life. But a memoir. I'm not telling y'all everything. I'm just telling y'all what I learned. I don't know if that resonates with you as somebody. Oh, with yeah. oh, I was I was struggling with it because they're interchangeable. When I think of autobiography, autobiography, I think of the person writing it themselves. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, auto memoirs. You know, because again, I've done thirty of them. You know, I love it every time. (laughs) As as me pulling those memories, and you know, telling a larger story through those memories. That's the way I think of a memoir. But it's usually, you know, somebody kind of guiding the person through, 
you know, what about this? What about this? What about this? And we put it together. Ah. It's there. It's their memories, but assembled in a way. Autobiography, I think of somebody sitting and, you know, writing their life story. It's the same, you know, they're interchangeable. But when I think of memoirs, I, th I think of the, the assistance that's required because that's, you know, kind of what I've oh, known for. Yeah. Yes, well, I mean, yeah so you say that you... Changeable. We said they're interchangeable and biography is somebody else writing somebody else's story completely ah. without that person. Right. So that's a biography. Ah. And there's a lot of biographers, you know, I don't trust them. I don't trust them because it's somebody else looking at just like, I don't trust documentaries that the people didn't participate <laughs> in, you know, because even, even though the, the memoirs that I've written, we may leave some things out on purpose because yes. that's yes. your life. You have a choice about what you're going to tell the people about you. Yes. You want them to know. Yes. And we may, you know, nuance some things to, to, to tell a greater story, you know, whereas bi biographers think of themselves objectively, you know, <laughs> somebody's life, but you don't have perspective. So you're, you're getting perspective in, in a memoir you don't and an that. autobiography from that person directly, which I, I think is, we should all, you know, have that right. Absolutely. To tell our stories, right? I'll have that right tell our stories. That's that that is very helpful because I mean that helps me even as I'm I just got this, so I'm be reading it. And that that's very interesting because as you talk, I'm thinking, well, then you and Alex Haley really as okay. with, with Malcolm, y'all kind of did a similar that's the same work because yeah, definitely, definitely. definitely and it's the autobiography of Malcolm X, but it, yeah, it's, it's a memoir. Yeah, you know, it's exactly right. Yeah, because because like I say, as, as Paul or any of the biographers of Malcolm would say, there are things in here that don't. Yeah, but that wasn't he, what he was doing. Now you get me. I'm now I'm wondering, as you're interacting with the subject and trying to and occupying their voice and their feelings, do you think that the things that strike you that come out of you in the form of questions that then trigger? Do you think then it becomes more of a a, 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 a co-authored work? I mean, in terms of. I wouldn't say co-authored because the, the source is always just like water. The source is always the source, right? So I think, you know, I think of my job and I, I just dropped in the uh, Nubia chat, my interview with Lance Reddick. I was, I was what, you know, I was about to ask you, no question. Yeah, no, I was stunned. <laughs> well, I interviewed him last year and oh. I, you know, I absolutely, you know, I was watching him in Bosch. I was watching him in a bunch of stuff. I love, I, I was, you know, I was remarking on his fitness because he's 60. And brother to take his shirt off still and have those <laughs> shoes. And I was like, what you what you be doing, sir? What is this regimen? Yeah. So I was like remarking on his health and how amazing he looks. And you know, I was like, how? What what happened? Um, so I was I think there's gonna be more that will come out about you know Absolutely. why he's not here, but you know. I, I'm glad you celebrated and lifted them up. But no, yeah. I'm glad and, and thank you. The uh, I'm assuming then that that that's going to be you gonna replay it this week or I'm no? Sure. I'm, I'm gonna replay it probably the end of the year because I do an in memoriam oh, uh, oh, oh. where I, I you know highlight people who have passed, made transition, and then spend some time with them. You know, going into the new year so we can reflect. Um, no but yeah, no uh, you know, it, this is why we should every day know that we're here to do something and do it. And don't waste time because it's not promised any of us. And we, you know, we mourn, but we also know that there's another realm. Thank, thank you. Thank you for reminding us about oh, the ancestry yeah, and, yeah. you know, and, and our role in that, like being worthy to be an ancestor, being worthy to be on the other side to, to, to continue to fight, you know, meaning that you have to have a certain energy here 
to be there to do other things. So I, you know, I think about that every day, being worthy of being an ancestor and leaving leaving something to even for somebody to pick up a baton to go a little further with. Like leave baton worthy stuff too. Like right. I wanted to mention that in terms. Oh. Rakia, so that was yeah, that I about. To ask you, please. So when she was here, she, you know, they have like a not a cheat sheet. I won't call it a cheat sheet, but it's a cheat sheet. Um, Jackson is not for the taking. HB ten twenty and what it does, and she come on it. now. So there's a whole form that I'm going to drop. I've already dropped it in both of the chats, and I'll drop it in the YouTube description. And you know, we we take a little time writing the description, so don't, you know, ask questions. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's usually in the description. So, in description. Yeah, go to the description. I'll I'll drop the link to um this PDF, this Google file uh that Rakia left us with to kind of know what the hell's going on. What you who voted for it? Uh who wrote this bill? Why it matters, and there's like bullet points, and you know, this is one, it's a one sheet, you know, water and sewer bills. She can she they Come break on. down Come everything. On. You know, so that none of us should be uninformed. It's two sheets, actually. It's two pages. So that's right. Uh, I dropped that in the in the chat right. too. I'm I'm glad you did that, Prof. And we can we can we can wrap it up here. I just want to mention one other book in the context of what you just talked about. Again, in the context of internationalism, and and this really is a path I think probably going to be on for a while. Um, remember on Monday night in Nubia. We are now finishing up our first run of the Introduction to African Studies class. So we're going to framing question six. What organizations, leaders, and movements did African people create to promote and advance our liberation? Um, this will take us from the period of decolon uh, decolonization, 1960s and 70s, through where we are today. So this lasts maybe 60, 70 years, which is a short period of time. Um, we will be doing that. And of course, the readings we have there, we're finishing up with Cedric Robinson, Black Movements in America, Chapter 6. And we'll probably spend a little bit more time in Chapter 4 of Something Torn and New in Guiwathiango. But all right, that having been said, um, that trip to the UN really, I think that if someone had taken me as a child to the United Nations, I think that's probably where I would have been. And through there, God knows only where else. I'd have got a head start on getting out of this collapsing structure. In fact, the, the Financial Times uh, lifestyle section has uh, an interview with um, the sister that wrote Cast, uh, Isabel Wilkerson. And there's a picture of her with Obama. She's getting the medal at the White House, but she's speaking at Oxford, at the Oxford Literary Festival. So Oz, I don't know if they'll let you up on Oxford campus, brother, but uh, he, she's over y'all town, uh, I saw Gina. But, um, she says that you know I, I would i'm not gonna stop let me see if i can if i can pick it up i will but i promise you i'm not gonna spend more than five more seconds looking for it and since i don't see it i'm not gonna persist if this is not it i'm done yes i will just quote it from memory at the end of the article they're asking about the prospects of the united states and she said you know i started this work when I wrote The Warmth of Other Sons and a lot of people who I interviewed made transition, passed away, she would say. And then I, you know, and, but I finished the book and then it took me 15 years and then I did cast and because I, I was fascinated with this notion of exclusivity and how cast operates in the, the world. And then she says, then uh, I'm working on a new project that's going to continue to bring that forward. She says, but I, I have hope about the United States. She lives in Georgia. She says, I have hope for the United States. 
but that hope is grounded in the also couched in the fact that we have to do something it ain't enough to hope about the world you have to change it she said because it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 20 some years because by 2040 or the mid 2040s this is going to be majority non-white country and everything is going to be up in the air i don't know what's going to happen and having read cast and having read the critiques of cast not the white nationalist useless nativist critiques but those who uh, like engage the work of Oliver Cox and Du Bois and others who say that she didn't go far enough or she maybe glossed some things. But again, she's writing for a general audience. So, I, you know, me, as Paul's right, I'll try to read just about everything. And I'm not a lot less critical of stuff than folks probably would think I should be. But I just like to take it all in because what are we doing? We sussing it out, as you say, Professor Hunter. But I, I thought about that in the context of her saying she doesn't know what happens next. And part of that, I think, is sadly, even as she's articulating her her understanding of a global phenomenon, cast, even as we're living through with this banking crisis, the reiteration of the reality that those at the top of this system that we have now play by a different set of rules. They move in money like it's real. I got to prop number 14 up because I'm number one and I'm probably going to buy number 14, but I don't need it to close today. So I'm going to give it a billion. You give it a billion. You three give it a billion. Come here, Secretary of Treasury. Get the rest of them. Okay, 30 billion. Now you go, oh shit, the stock's still dropping? Okay, I'm going to buy it now because guess what? Chase Manhattan getting ready to be a bit, get bigger. Bank of America getting ready to get bigger. The Russian bank is paying the Russians financing as the Chinese are talking to the to the Russian uh, uh, head and trying to settle that beef. And the British and the European banks are sitting back like, look, just wait, because he's going to get ready to fall. Maybe we pick up some cheap bargains. At the same time, y'all saw the Swedes have come in, Credit Swiss, and they went to one source and we ain't giving you no money. Then the rest of them come in and said, we're going to pay y'all. All this is moving at the top of this system. At the bottom of the system, though, where Rukia and them are, the last book I'll mention as we close, in the spirit of James Foreman, the making of black revolutionaries, in the spirit of who read Che Guevara and said, how can we apply this to SNCC? In the spirit of Dick Gregory, who was sitting there with Malcolm, understanding the international concerns, who didn't go in February 65, but was there in December 64 on the same night Che Guevara was supposed to be there, thinking about international affairs. As Malcolm, who lived his life, the last part of his life, as an internationalist who applied those lessons and was going to, to the local concerns of African people in the United States of America, which made him an absolute threat to a federal government whose existence relies on keeping us cut off from the rest of the world and a government since his assassination that is teetering on the brink because they have catered to the same white nationalist sentiment that they were founded on and now it's going rogue to a point where it ain't like the 60s. So DeSantis and Abbott and all them hillbilly hordes would rather it implode than go forward. And those of us who could be harmed have to intervene, not to prop up the government, but to defend ourselves, which brings me to the last book that just came out. It is about Jackson. It is the second edition of a book that came out a few years ago. This is called, called Jackson Rising. This is Jackson Rising Redux, Lessons on Building the Future in the Present. Kali Akuno and Matt Meyer, Cooperation Jackson. The thing I like about this book, among other things, is this book chronicles how, as James Foreman says, you've got to address local concerns. People got to eat, people got to sleep, people got to get health care, people got to get education for their children. All that is going on. People need recreation, they need fresh food, all that. This is what Rakia is talking about. This, that, that now you can see the policy thing, and Jackson is not up for sale. On page 214 of a 550-some page book, 
he talks a little bit about the Lumumba family. As a child, Chokwe Lumumba's son, Chokwe Antar, sometimes wished for another name, one that sounded more like those of his friends. But Antar also trusted his parents, because that's what we all call him, Antar, when his daddy was alive. Now we know him as Chokwe, but his middle name is Antar. But Antar also trusted his parents, and he looked up to them. He knew his father's work as a civil rights-oriented lawyer was important, and he used to sneak out of his bed at night to lie on the floor of his parents' room and listen as they discussed his father's cases. This is Chokwe and Nubia Lumumba, both now ancestors. He shared his father's name, and he would grow up to share his profession. And he goes on how they grew up, grew up in this kind of thing. But watch this. He says, um, Lumumba's work as a lawyer invited renown to the family, but also occasional vitriol. Antar and Rukia, his sister, of course, you were just talking about, Antar and Rukia spent one afternoon hiding in a closet with a knife clutched between them after a death threat was breathed over the phone while their parents were away. These are two children in the house. The phone rings. They answer the phone. Next sentence. In high school, on the phone with a girlfriend, Antar would wrap up by saying, okay, goodbye to you too, FBI. <laughs> His parents always said that the house's phones were tapped. Years later, among the hundreds of pages of documents that emerged from a Freedom of Information Act request for FBI reports on Chokwe Lumumba, Antar saw his high school graduation photo. The sight of it there didn't unsettle him because it confirmed what he'd already been told. Mm -hmm. The point is this. These people are never going to get off our necks by us asking. Of course Jackson is not up for sale. Let's dance! Tate Reeves, you punk! Let's dance! And if you don't think that resting the vote is important, please understand that resting the vote is not going to save us. But not voting is not going to save us either. And as Malcolm X would tell you, stop lying on Malcolm. Political engagement is a tool in our box. That's why he had Ms. Hamer speak at the Audubon. This is why he was there with Dick Gregory. And, it all, and, and on the other side, for those who think that wrapping ourselves in this flag is going to be the thing to save us, don't you cut yourself off from everybody else. Don't be scared because the more we do that, the less power they have. And I'll stop with that for this mm -hmm. week. I'm going to keep reading on Ralph Bunch, and I think we're going to... Oh, oh, yeah. what we yeah. got? <laughs> what we got, prop? <laughs> no, all of that. Um, mm. I wish I'd known that when I talked with Rakia. Oh, the beautiful thing about that sister is, you know how that is. They're both beautiful spirits. You just call up again. Yeah, no, I know, I know. But, you know, it's, as, as a person that interviews people, the amount of things that I don't know that would make that interview so much richer, you know, I just think about, you know, the amount of time that goes into it without being too academic with it. Cause you still have to have like kind of this, this, this flow with a person. Cause you're really talking to a person, you, you know, yes, fortunately I can call her back. And fortunately I could talk to her brother, you know, but if we don't know, we got folk out there that don't even know Otis Redding interviewing people, you know, <laughs> why why are we doing this why why would just not everybody could just sit and interview people just because you Come can on. talk i mean on, to me this is we, no, we, no, have no, to do, we have to do a better job of demanding better of the people who are disseminating our information because as their limitations go so so will ours right and if no if people are sitting in these seats asking questions with no knowledge mm. so didn't cardi b to interview the president the uh, future president of the united states or you know whether it's hillary clinton with mary j blige
You know that's why they do it. You know that's why they do it. God bless my students. The, the move now has become to have students interview people. And my thing is, that's beautiful. You put people in conversation with each other. Like I just got an email uh, yesterday. I think the embassy of one of the East African embassies, they want to put something together for next week on Howard's campus at the Ralph Bunch Center, ironically. And they said, we want you to bring students because we're going to have students talk to this ambassadors about Black History Month and how it fits with African. And I'm saying, or you can have some faculty and have some students ask too. But but see, the whole notion is, why would you, why is that your first thought? <laughs> you know, I, I think about the rich, the rich debates that James Baldwin, we were talking about this this week as well. James Baldwin yeah. had, you know, at Oxford and with yes. Nikki Giovanni, you know, like we're talking about two very well-read people sussing out the issues of the day, right? And, no. and it's only because they both, come to the table with so much knowledge. Like I, I'm quiet most of the time here because I'm learning the things I don't know. I and you are, you are sending me down rabbit holes. And now I'm like, okay, no, that's in my toolbox now. That's in my arsenal. <laughs> and I bring that forward. But that's the work, right? The work is on you knowing as much as you can so that you are not the problem, that you are not leading us down. And there's so many people with platforms out there talking and running their mouths and they haven't even read our book. And y'all, they have museums that they're erecting and they don't read. I'm sitting there like, damn, like I don't even feel mm. worthy to mm. open my mouth most of the time when we're in class together. Cause I'm no, like, no. Well, no, no, you know, we, I can add, I'll add, but it's like- no, We, we have conversations together. We have conversations. Yeah, in fact, I'm trying to remember, uh, there's some Arabic speakers in here right now. What is the Arabic word for book? Anybody know? I'm Somebody put it in the chat. chat. But anyway, as you put it in the chat, right. Study, and this is what I love about this today. You know, I've been I've been thinking real hard about this international work. In fact, while I was there, um, I, I didn't have part two of the Cambridge World History on uh, uh, the temporary era, 1750 to the present. And I'll never be able to read these books between now and next Saturday, although I will probably try. And so I'm just saying we have to put this stuff in the content because you because of this platform, because of what you created, it's global. And then we're all in here now working alongside each other. We have a responsibility to suss together. We have a responsibility to do it. And if we don't, we're going to miss the lesson of these previous generations. When I look at uh, Rukia and, and Chokwe Lumumba and everybody in Jackson, that is a global struggle being applied locally. Those lessons are locally applied. But this is what James Foreman is saying. When, you know, if you, if you sit down and listen to them, they're going to take you all over the world. It, and so somebody didn't put it. Yeah, Qatar. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is, so what, so what is Tariq? Somebody, what, what is the word Tariq? <laughs> Kitab is one word. Kitab at, uh, I think, I think Tariq is another word for, if not book script. Somebody should look up that, look at uh, Kitabu in Swahili. Right. I'm familiar with Kitabu. Yeah. In Swahili. So, yeah. But anyway, it don't matter because I, when you said some people open the museums and, and then, yeah, and, and then okay. you look, I mean, I can't, I can't resist. Oh, because, yeah, go ahead. Come on. No, no, I'm just going to, this is 30 seconds. If you're going to open a museum, that's great. But if you're going to put a picture of John Henry Clark in there and claim that John Henry Clark was a Pan-Africanist. So don't you ever slap no, American flag and rap John, who was a veteran like my daddy of the military, who worked, he served in the army. And when he got out, he went to Ghana. John Clark 
said, I'm a socialist. I'm a pan-Africanist. I don't see no distinction between, or no difference between the two. I'm all of those things, which what you're not going to do is drag him back in change to some funky, I'm a descendant of a slave. If you do that, son, we're going to make you famous, but not for the reasons you want to be. Mm. Anyway, Tariq means truth. <laughs> well, there you go. Personal truth. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and, and listen, listen, we, we we say these things, or at least I know I do, I know you do, with the hope that we would not be deceived, with the hope that we will not follow people into a you know a brick wall or over a cliff, but that we would question everything that's being, you know, tossed at us that has some traction because we're in this space where social media can collapse banks, you know? So it's super important that we are more now, discriminating we, about the things we put into our, into our Did you say that again, bro? Did you say that, I mean, where social media can collapse banks? I, I, I don't know about you. It seems to me that of all the other lessons about, you know, overcapitalization or too many big investors don't, that, to me, that's the lesson of this last week. Social media can collapse banks. And let me be clear. SVB was on its way out anyway because, right. of, because of the economy and, and because of its heavy investment in tech, which is, you know, it was a car crash. It was going to happen. But it happened quickly because of social media, right? And so if that, if 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 social media can can make a bankrupt stock soar and collapse Ooh. a bank within minutes, then we have to be more discriminating. We just can't just repeat on Facebook and send stuff out without making sure that it's right. And I've been guilty of sending out bad things or even saying things, but I correct it in a moment because, you know, a lie can't live. And if a lie lives too long, it becomes the truth. You know, it's like the ledger. <laughs> you know, it's like that, that the truth becomes, the myth becomes the truth. And, you know, over time, you get a president like Trump. You know, we put too many people immortalize them in our music then how do our children understand that this person is a fraud? Well, Nelly just rapped about him. He must be a billionaire. You know, Bill Gates, you know, Donald Trump, let me in now. You know, it's like, well, he must be everything that we're hearing because it's on a loop, right? It's on a loop. So, you know, how bad can it be? How bad can it be? And, and we have to do it. Like you say, I love this sus concept. I mean, Dick Gregory is a great example. You know, we knew Dick Gregory. We know Dick. Dick Gregory could say some things that everybody knows is coming out of his mouth. That didn't happen, bro. That's great. But the thing about it is he never stopped making you think. Even this conversation around Malcolm and who influenced him, who didn't influence him. Yeah, I see his point. And no doubt there was an influence there. But Malcolm came into that space with an influence. But what Dick Gregory allows us to do, he gives us a point of entry where we can then begin to study for ourselves. And that is one of his great geniuses, his capacity. And when I, when I, when I listen to you and we learn from you, you know, absorbing things, here's stuff I knew, here's some stuff I did, here's some other stuff I didn't know. And then the capacity to, and that's the genius of African Proverbs, to, to, to say something in a way where everybody understands what you said. And then the more they think about it, the more they realize it's a lot more layers to that. I mean, you did it again today. Again, I think Sus could replace methodology. <laughs> at least that's what, but we ain't, I ain't got to fight that fight at the university no more because we got new people. And we have each other. Um, mm -hmm. I was pulling up this uh, clip because last week you mentioned uh, Newark. And yes. I was mad because I was like, why didn't I know that? that was you said that last week. You said it'll never happen again. 
Okay, so they did this whole thing in Newark, and I could have been there. And been there. and and Queen Latifah's birthday is today, so I thought, you know, let's uh spend oh, some time oh, with wow. her. Yeah, and I found the video of the ri ribbon cutting, nice purple of the Harriet Tubman uh monument. So I was like, let's let's spend some time with them. Happy hey, birthday, you know, Queen Latifah, Dana Owens, from La 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 from Halstead. It's also Vanessa L. Williams, the, the Miss America first black woman. It's her birthday. A lot of people's birthdays today. Uh, Steph Curry's birthdays today. Today is a nice day to have a birthday, but there she birthday. is. Uh, hey, look, y'all. Yes. What, what y'all think the over under is on Professor Hunter tracking down the sister who designed that and the sister who wrote the script before long and talking to him? Because I don't know which ones they are in that picture, but I know it's a black woman architect and a black woman who wrote the script that, that, that Latifah ended up narrating. But anyway, I'm gonna be quiet. I want to watch this. I haven't seen this. Four, because I've got three, two, is it loud? One, kind Monumental brings Harriet Tubman's resistance and integrity to people everywhere who really need to hear it. We want people to know, to feel, to understand what was at stake and how incredibly brave Harriet Tubman was. Um, I loved working with Audible and I love working with them to share stories that empower and inspire people. And together we're committed to taking storytelling and black storytelling in particular, African-American storytelling, the black experience storytelling <laughs> to the next level and make a real impact in our communities uh, around the world. And Audible has a true love and care for our hometown of Newark, New Jersey. They've been right here for 15 years and I'm proud to work alongside them on the ground and to raise our voices together for our community. Yeah, so there's that. And I, I, I wanted to bring that because AP had the audacity to say rapper Queen Latifah. I saw you said something about that. I'm like, what'd you really? tell him? You said, what's the correction, prof? What should they have said? Uh, mogul, you can start there. You know, philanthropist, <laughs> how about that? You know, uh, you know actress, producer, no you know, problem. all of that. I just, I feel like, you know, again, because media is full of people who are ignorant, it, it's lazy and easy to categorize, but it's permanent, right? So you have to be real careful with choosing your words and how you shape people because you're shaping them. I tell this to my students, you're shaping the world with the words that you choose and how you describe folk. Absolutely. It's out there, right? And because it's an AP, right? she's just a rapper but she's not. And it's not about black media. It's about being responsible with the, the vision and the image of folk. It, that's your responsibility. That's right. So you don't take that lightly. Um, no. So I just wanted to do that. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Baby. All right, Dr. Carr, I love you. Love you too. Love see you on Monday. Thank Monday you for night. everything. Yeah. And uh, yes, we'll see y'all in the morning. on a Saturday. I mean, uh, Sunday. Sunday tomorrow. Oh yeah, she she's uh, second uh, with Yasier, um, the the yogi from Chicago. Yeah. You know uh, what? 
Yeah, he, he was on the show on Wednesday, but he's going to be back in community with Dr. Senyata tomorrow. Yes. And, you know, and I, and what I love about that more than anything, and Queen Latifah talking about community, Yes. you know, is that we, we can take the fear out of being together, being in our bodies, reminding ourselves about movement and all of that and being okay with, you know, meditation and healing ourselves from the inside out. And it's not a mysterious thing. It's ancient and uh, it's, it's okay. Like, it's okay. Let's, let's take the bondage of what we've been taught off, take the, the shackles off our minds. I, I'm I'm grateful for that space, and I'm grateful that you brought you brought Sonyata in. You brought Dr. Daniel Black no, in. You're you're the plug. You're the plug. Yeah, no. yep, yes, you are. I love and, it. And Adria brought me in to you. <laughs> that, yeah. Everybody it, has their role. So everybody has their role. No question. <laughs> somebody somebody in the chat said, you know, Dr. Carr is, you know, you you doing all. I'm like I'm like we are all manifestations of each other, right? So it's not oh, no just. Question. Putting us on pedestals, like no, what's your no. position in this? Pick up something, pick up no. the baton. Let's go, let's go. Everybody has something to do. And Everybody so, has. Something. In fact, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't mention it. And don't go into this is very quick. When Gunnar Murdahl came from Sweden and did an American Dilemma, people still quote that book, that thousand page book. But Gunnar Murdahl came here. The first thing he did was go find the black scholars who knew the community. Ralph Bunch wrote thousands of pages that ended up partially an American dilemma. Gunnar Murdahl did not do that research and Bunch relied on a team. In fact, I didn't mention that. a couple of the books here that have been published of his notes. You can't do anything by yourself is the point. When they gave him that, that, uh, that Nobel prize and Malcolm called him the George Washington of Israel and used and saying it as an insult. And then, you know, and they said, what do you mean? And anyway, I'm saying out to say that even in the circumstances where he did that, Bunch said, I don't want this award. He said, it was the staff of the UN. He tried to give it back. I mean, this is, I mean, when Dr. King got the Nobel, he gave the money to SCLC. I mean, you can't do anything by yourself, y'all. We're building this together. And I'm I'm sure. so grateful to you, Prof, because oh. even though, even as we're all doing it together, there are certain people who have certain gifts that make it all possible because we were not doing this three years ago. COVID was a straight tragedy. And you said, you know what? This is a chance to do. And here we are in a space now. This is home. It is home. Thank and, you. And I uh, thank y'all for the prayers. Yeah, for the intercession, yeah, you know, for all of that, and we're gonna keep Dr. Carr healthy. Oh, yeah, you're gonna drink your water. Yeah, I'm about to get some more. I'm bringing some water right now and take your walks and get yeah, on I'm, out there. I'm so out there in a minute, yeah, right. yeah. So, we need us all. You already I, had yours though, because you I get out early. I, I got up and out, and I'm still drinking my water because this is this is life, yes, ma'am. Uh, and thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. I'll see you in the Nubian streets, see Nubian streets. Love y'all, love y'all. All right, y'all, have a great weekend.